The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume, Lecture 8. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last week we stopped in the middle of a discussion of Thomas Aquinas' monumental attempt to synthesize Christianity with the doctrines of Aristotle, which had been rediscovered some decades before Aquinas' birth. In particular, we looked at Aquinas' epistemology, his doctrine that reason is an absolute, that man must go by reason, that whatever can be proved by man's unaided secular reason operating on sense experience is true, and that faith is only a supplement to reason, not its basis and not its antagonist. And we discussed in what way this doctrine was a charter of liberty for man's reason. After centuries of the Platonizing Augustine, to say nothing of the Tertullian types. Now let us pick up our discussion of Aquinas and proceed this evening from Aquinas in the 13th century on through to the end of the 16th century. And first let us look at Aquinas' metaphysics. Before I tell you its central thrust, I want to say at the outset that Aquinas was never consistently Aristotelian in metaphysics, any more than he could as a devout Catholic be consistently Aristotelian in any branch of philosophy. In metaphysics, for instance, he believes that a supernatural dimension, God, is the creator and source of this world. He believes that God's mind contains the platonic forms just as Plotinus had said, and thus the Platonic forms for Aquinas are logically prior to the things in this world. Aquinas often, especially in discussing the problem of evil, inclines to a Neoplatonic view of the relative unreality of this world compared to the true reality of God. He believes in all the Catholic dogmas, the Trinity, the Incarnation, etc. Now, all of this you should bear in mind Aquinas is not a pagan. He is not a pure Aristotelian, not in metaphysics and not in any branch of philosophy. He is simply as close to an Aristotelian as it is possible for a devout Christian to get. Nobody ever came closer to it than he did, if you're a Christian. All right, let's now with that preface turn to the distinctive Aristotelian elements in his metaphysics, the new approach in metaphysics that he brought to the Christian world. If the central problem in epistemology is how to reconcile reason and faith, the central problem confronting Aquinas in metaphysics is how to reconcile God and this world. You recall the Augustinian view that there are two radically opposite sundered dimensions. God, who is reality, absolute reality, perfection, and nature, or the physical world, which is fundamentally unreal, which is essentially the Neoplatonic absence, the place where the rays of the one, the light of God, have run out, so it's gotten dark. And this world, if you remember, for Augustine was therefore a kind of gray, unreal, unsubstantial haze. God is absolutely opposite from this world. He is perfect in reality. This world is damned, unreal, corrupt. And yet Aristotle had said there was only one reality and that it was fully real. 
How did Aquinas reconcile these two views? Well, he took over from Aristotle the view that there is only one reality, but that it is hierarchical in nature. You remember Aristotle's view that there are various levels of reality, depending upon the extent to which form is actualized. Ascending from prime matter, the elements, the compounds, the plants, animals, men, the intelligences which move the spheres, and then the pure form, the prime mover at the very top. Well, Aquinas adopted this whole framework. Reality, he said, is not irrevocably sundered into two opposite worlds, God versus nature. No, there are not really two kinds of reality at all, he said. There's only one. The universe forms one single real totality, but it rises in ascending levels of actuality to reach God as its climax, who is at the top, pure actuality. In this sense, said Aquinas, it is right for a Christian to exalt God above the world, because God is the top of the hierarchy, after all, the supreme form. But, he insisted, this does not imply that we must metaphysically despise or degrade the world of nature that we live in, that we must turn it into some sort of degenerate dimension infected with non-being. No, he says, nature, the world we live in, is part of the one reality. It's merely a lower level of the one continuous hierarchy, rising unbrokenly up the Aristotelian ladder to God. And of course, the intelligences which move the spheres give way in Aquinas' view to the angels. In the famous expression which ca captures this view, grace perfects nature. Grace being the realm of God, nature, the physical world, and whereas the Augustinian view had been grace destroys nature, the realm of God destroys or obliterates the reality of this world, Aquinas' view is God perfects nature. Now this view is of enormous significance. It undercuts the metaphysical basis for despising this world. The earth, the natural world, with all of its creatures, including man, are now real. They exist. Now, it's very hard to communicate to you how revolutionary this perspective is. But that's Aquinas' big contribution. This world is real. It is. Everything is part of one integrated universe. You see, Aquinas, following Aristotle, equates the real with the individual, not with the universal. And there are, therefore, in his view, no such thing as degrees of reality. There are degrees of complexity of structure. There are degrees of what Aristotle called actuality, but there are no degrees of reality in the Platonic sense. Everything that exists, including the world of physical entities, is fully and equally there. It is. It's real. In this respect, as an Aristotelian, Thomas agrees with Aristotle, who agrees with Parmenides. What is, is. If a thing is, then it is, the law of identity. Either it is or it isn't, the law of excluded middle. It can't sort of be and yet sort of not be, the law of contradiction. And the result is that this world gains, regains, the solidity, the substantiality, the metaphysical stature, the reality, which had been shorn from it by the Platonizing Augustinians. This world is real. And therefore, the things in this world are fit and proper objects for human study. 
In pursuing science, we are again studying with and in contact with reality. We are not in Plato's cave watching the half-real, shadowy reflections. We are not in Plotinus's world watching the emptiness where the rays ran out. We are not in Augustine's world watching prope nihil, if you remember his definition of matter, almost nothing. We are uh, in reality, and science is therefore a study of reality. Moreover, the earth is a fit place to live in. It's man's natural home. True enough, the realm of God is man's supernatural destiny, and that's more important, but still his natural home is a real home. It's a part of reality. It's not a place of exile from reality. <clears throat> As to man, and that means individual man for Aquinas, since he's an Aristotelian in this respect, man too gains a real metaphysical dignity on Aquinas's view. After all, man occupies a place rather high up on the metaphysical hierarchy. The angels and God, to be sure, are above man. But still, within the natural world, man is the highest being. As it came to be put, man is the highest of the natural material beings and the lowest of the spiritual ones. But note that man is the only being who has a foot in both camps, who belongs to both worlds. As a living physical creature, he's a member of this world. But as a creature with an intellect, and as Aquinas thought, therefore, an immortal soul, and here, of course, Aristotle's uh, immortal active reason was of great help to him. Man is destined to a life in the spiritual hereafter. So man, so to speak, has a crucial metaphysical role to play for Aquinas. Man is the creature who closes the gap between the physical world and the world of God and the angels. He is the link which unites the two dimensions into one reality. The highest member of the one realm <coughs> who is also, by virtue of his immortal soul, a potential member of the other. You can think of it as though man for Aquinas is the metaphysical glue that keeps the universe stuck together. And we have to always remember this. <clears throat> In speaking of man's supernatural destiny, as of course we must do as good Christians, we must emphasize that as good Christians. Nevertheless, says Aquinas, we mustn't forget that man is also a member of this world. There is not only a supernatural man with an otherworldly destiny, but a natural man with a thisworldly destiny. Now, the ethical implications of this you should be able to guess. Now, I've said that on this view of Aquinas, science is metaphysically possible again. And, of course, it's epistemologically possible via the liberation of reason. But you might still ask me, well, after all, how is science possible? Because aren't all events still a product of God's will, according to Aquinas? Even for Aquinas, God created the world ex nihilo. That's a uh, dogma, and he must subscribe to it. God has a plan. Everything happens as he ordains by his will. Uh, everything in that sense is a miracle. It proceeds from God, from God's will. How then can you have science? Well, Aquinas dealt with this question too. And his answer was, true enough, everything is determined by God as part of his plan and by his will. But, it so happens that God usually works through intermediate or secondary causes. An orderly, lawful, regular universe <clears throat> where entities act in accord with their natures is part of what God wills. A scientifically understandable universe is part of his plan. 
So ultimately it's true, only God has causal efficacy. But he expresses it by endowing his creatures with causal efficacy. Now, of course, God can intervene directly at any time and dispose with the intermediate causes. He can simply point in a divine way to a rock and say, I want wine to come out, in which case that will be a miracle. But on the whole, says Aquinas, we should try to explain events in terms of natural laws and causes, just as Aristotle said, not by reference to God's directly willing. Although, of course, he does believe in miracles. Now, this view also was a charter releasing man to attempt to discover order and law in the natural universe. Now, let's turn to God. <clears throat> I want to mention Aquinas' famous arguments for the existence of God. Since these are arguments, it comes under what we called last time natural theology. That is the it's a theological subject matter, but it's arrived at exclusively by the secular reason. There are five famous arguments which Aquinas puts forth for the existence of God. None of them are original with him, and I cannot go into the details of them this evening. I will simply identify for you the main principle of each of them. Number one is the argument from motion. This, these are to this day uh, the arguments of the Catholic Church in favor of God. The argument from motion is number one, and that literally restates Aristotle's argument for the prime mover, arguing that motion implies a first mover, a prime mover, an unmoved mover, and therefore there's absolutely nothing new in that. Two, the argument from efficient causation. Now this basically restates the argument from motion in different language, speaking of causes rather than motions. You remember Aristotle's definition of the efficient cause, the factor which brings about the existence or the motion of something. In the case of the example, we use the sculptor's actual shaping of the clay. Well, this argument goes like this. Everything has an efficient cause which brought it into existence, which is true enough. Next premise, nothing can be the efficient cause of itself. And that's obviously the case. Nothing can produce itself or bring itself into existence. It first would have to exist before it could do anything. It follows that everything is caused by something previous and that by something previous and we'll have a whole series of causes stretching back, each caused by the preceding. But now Aquinas asks, what is responsible for the existence of the whole series of causes and effects? We can't have an infinite regress, <coughs> or rather, to be exact, he says, there may be an infinite regress of causes of causes of causes. We know from faith that there was a beginning because God created the world. But as far as reason is concerned, perhaps the series does go back forever. Nevertheless, he says, we must ask, what is the explanation of the whole series? Why is there anything at all? And that, you see, is the exact parallel to Aristotle's question, why is there any motion at all? And he concludes on exactly the same reasoning. There must be an uncaused cause, a first cause. Now, this introduces nothing new but the terminology. It's essentially the argument for motion transferred over to causality, and the same objections are applicable to it. The third is called the argument from necessity and contingency. And it goes like this. Some entities are contingent. By contingent, we mean here it is possible for them not to exist as against a necessary entity which would have to exist. Some entities are contingent. They come into being 
They stick around for a while, they pass away. Now, uh, Aquinas argues, it is not possible that all entities could be contingent. Now, to simplify his argument, what it comes to is, if every entity was contingent, that would mean existence as a whole could pass away. And of course, it can't. Therefore, something must be necessary. And if so, either it's necessary by its own nature, incapable of going out of existence by its own inherent character, or else it owes its necessity to something else. But again, we can't have an infinite regress, so ultimately there must be something which is absolutely necessary, which simply has to exist by its own nature. And this, he says, is what we mean by God, the absolutely necessary being. Now, in answer to this argument, I need merely point out to you that, first of all, it's based on the dichotomy between necessary and contingent facts, which Aquinas took over from Aristotle, who took it over from Plato. And since that dichotomy is false, the whole argument, in fact, can't get off the ground. But secondly, even if you were to grant that dichotomy, it proves nothing whatever about a god. Because a Greek could answer, well, fine. Why don't we say that the world stuff is the absolutely necessary thing? And what you call contingent beings are merely different arrangements of the eternal necessary world stuff. So we have a completely necessary thing which has no supernatural associations and no religious significance. Number four. Now I'm whizzing through these pretty fast, but you get the idea. The argument from degrees. And it goes as follows. <coughs> there are degrees of various qualities that we observe. Things vary, for instance, in heat, in size, in, in value, and so on. Where there are degrees of a quality, there must, Aquinas argues, be an absolute maximum of that quality somewhere, which is the cause of its existence in all the lesser degrees. Now, there are degrees of goodness, as we observe. Some things are better, others are worse. There must, therefore, be a maximum of goodness which causes all the lesser degrees of goodness, an absolute goodness or an absolute perfection, and this is God. Therefore, there's a God. Now, this argument is generally the weakest of the five. The premise of it, of course, namely that variation in degree implies a separate entity of the maximum amount causing the lesser degrees has no plausibility. It actually rests on the Platonic theory of forms. You remember for Plato, all the qualities here in this world vary depending upon how much they reflect the perfect form of their quality in the other world. So if there are degrees down here, that, for Plato, implies a maximum perfect embodiment of the quality in the other world. And you see, that's really the framework in which uh, Aquinas is here arguing. So it's a thoroughly platonic argument for God. And finally <coughs> is number five, the teleological argument, the argument from design, which we already mentioned several times. That argument is very simple. There is order in the world. Everything happens either always or for the most part, says Aquinas following Aristotle's phrase. But order, as Aristotle showed, implies final causation, implies teleology. And, says Aquinas, teleology implies a conscious being who is imposing the purpose or end or goal on things. And therefore there must be such a cosmic consciousness, namely God, the cosmic designer. Now here, of course, the point to challenge is the Aristotelian view that order 
requires a final cause. And I criticize that in discussing Aristotle's teleology. I simply point out that Aquinas is superior to Aristotle in this one respect. If you grant final causation as a metaphysical uh, principle of everything, then Aquinas is right. The only way to make sense of teleology is some sort of divine consciousness. Uh, and in that respect, he draws the conclusions from Aristotle's error. Well, we have to leave these arguments now. I just wanted to mention them in passing. You can today find an endless quantity of books expounding them in loving detail, so you don't need me for that. Now, a word about the nature of God. <clears throat> Aquinas, to his satisfaction, has proved the existence of God. He has to now face another task. He has to show that the God he has proved is the God of Christianity, not merely the prime mover of Aristotle. The argument from motion, for instance, proves, if it's correct, the unmoved mover. And if you recall, he's completely impotent and ignorant, unconscious of the world without any power over it, able to do nothing but contemplate himself, his own perfection from eternity to eternity. Now, how do you get from this God to the God of Christianity? Well, if we had a month, I would indicate some of the ways by which Aquinas attempted this feat. Of course, it is impossible, it can't be done. But to give you just one example, <clears throat> on the issue of does God know the world, Aquinas takes this line. He says, Aristotle's right. True enough, God only knows his own nature. He only knows himself. But we know that God is the creator of the world and that he contains the archetypes of everything in the world in his mind. And therefore, in knowing himself, indirectly knows the world he created, and therefore God does know the world. Now, you see, that's pretty weak, because he has to resort to faith to establish that God created the world. So it's no longer natural theology. In the last analysis, Aquinas' view is that reason can prove the existence of God, and can give us a few slender leads as to God's nature, but the real essence of God, insofar as man can know it on earth, depends on faith. So much for Aquinas on God. Now, I simply want to mention that I have to leave out Aquinas on angels, owing the lack of time. But he had some interesting things to say about angels. So if you ask me in the question period about Aquinas as angels, uh, I will be happy to tell you a few tidbits about the angels. Now let's conclude our brief survey of Thomism by looking at the main principle of his ethics. And here again he attempted to reconcile Aristotle with Christianity. Ethics has a dual nature, just as man does. Because man is in part a natural being living on earth as his natural home, a part of ethics will prescribe for that side of man. But insofar as man is being with the supernatural destiny, there will be a part of ethics for that side of him. So there will be two types of virtues, the natural virtues for man qua natural being and the theological virtues for man qua being with a supernatural destiny. And in Aquinas' opinion, these two sets of virtues do not conflict because in fulfilling the natural virtues, in living well here on earth, he said, we develop and prepare ourselves for our supernatural destiny. And again, 
The idea running throughout his philosophy, the theological elements supplement the natural elements. They don't contradict it. As to the natural virtues, they are Aristotelian. Aquinas emphasizes simply following Aristotle, self-realization, the all-round development of one's capacities, all the various moral and intellectual virtues we saw when we looked at Aristotle's ethics. You should live by reason. You should satisfy your natural, this-worldly desires, at least to a moderate extent. You should not despise the body or the physical, and you should aim at eudaimonia, happiness on earth. This whole side of ethics, says Aquinas, the natural ethics is discoverable by reason alone. It comes under philosophy, not theology. And he says, at least to some degree, man by his own efforts can achieve the natural virtues. And we're still obeying God's will in following our reason in natural ethics, he says, because God, after all, is the creator of the rationality of the universe. So in obeying reason, we're still obeying God's will. Now. I always thought that God would have to be very surprised to discover that what he willed was Aristotle's ethics. <laughs> but we can leave that for God to worry about. Now, this naturalistic side of uh, Thomas's ethics released the whole system of Aristotelian, this-worldly ethical values into the stream of medieval culture. For instance, even the virtues of poverty and chastity had to be modified, at least for most men, priests and saints exempt. Because after all, virtue is the golden mean. You can't go to extremes. And utter poverty and drinking laundry water and so on, that is an extreme. <laughs> now, if you want one touch illustrating the charter of liberty for human reason that Aquinas introduced following Aristotle, I want to refer you to his fascinating doctrine called the Erring Reason Binds, E-R-R-I-N-G, the Erring Reason Binds. Now, you remember the Augustinian view that you have to accept Christian dogmas whether they make sense to you or not. If you try to set up your puny mind above God's and to judge the rationality of the dogmas, that is depravity, intellectual arrogance, etc. Now, Aquinas, under the influence of Aristotle, takes a diametrically opposite view here. We cannot, he says, demand more of any man than that he honestly follow his own reason. Now he was asked the question, well, suppose a man's reason errs, makes a mistake. Suppose the man honestly think it's, thinks that it's rational to endorse a certain belief or take a certain action, but in fact he's made an error, and the belief or action is against the church dogma. What should the man do? Should he suspend his reason and follow the dogma? or follow his own reason even if it conflicts with the dogma. To which Aquinas answered, a man must follow his own reason. Reason binds. You have to go by reason even if your reason has made a mistake, as long as that is your honest conviction. And that's the doctrine, the erring reason binds. Needless to say, the valid reason binds just as much. And here's a quote from Aquinas, quote, Every will at variance with reason, whether right or erring, is always evil, unquote. Now that is certainly marvelous. And Aquinas himself gives the most startling example. We know that belief in Jesus, he tells us, is necessary to salvation. Nevertheless, he says, if someone honestly believes otherwise, he would be wrong to become a Christian. Reason is the absolute. It is in this respect even more absolute than the Christian dogma. 
Now you see how utterly opposite this is to the earlier uh, Augustinian Christian viewpoint. Now while there is this whole Aristotelian side in Aquinas, the other side, especially in ethics, is always there, it's often dominant, and you must not get the wrong impression. Beside the natural, rational virtues, there are the theological virtues. Faith, hope, charity. Charity, of course, is a translation of caritas, which means love, love of God. It's only after the 18th century that it came to mean giving money to beggars. Uh, these uh, theological virtues, says Aquinas, faith, hope, and charity cannot be proved by reason. They depend on God's revelation uh, for us to know that they're virtues. They pertain to man's relation to God, not to life on earth. And they cannot be attained by us at all by our own efforts, only by God's grace. And here Aquinas accepted as a good Christian the whole Augustinian viewpoint which had been, of course, proclaimed official church dogma. Man is stained with original sin. He requires God's grace to make a step in the direction of virtue. He's predestined to heaven or hell by God's inscrutable decision, etc., etc. All of which, as you can project, clashes constantly with the more Aristotelian side of his thought. If you want simply one sentence on politics, but I mean one, with a semicolon, it would be, just as grace perfects nature, so the church perfects the state. And just as God is supreme over nature, therefore the church must be supreme over the state. That is Aquinas' politics, I can't even say in a nutshell, but in an aphorism. Now, in this brief sketch of Aquinas, I've had to leave out almost everything he said, <coughs> including all the ingenious ways in which he tried to reconcile Aristotle and Christianity in details. And I have not emphasized the Christian elements which exist in abundance in Aquinas. I've painted primarily the better Aristotelian side because I wanted to isolate one element. For our purposes, what is crucial about him to sum up is this. He released reason. He affirmed that this world is real and it's man's natural home. He gave man a significantly added metaphysical evaluative stature and within the limits imposed by his dogmas, he advocated that man has some share in working out his own this worldly destiny, that he ought to develop his human rational powers and as far as possible enjoy his present stay on earth. Now this was in the 13th century. The 14th is the end of the medieval period and the prologue to the Renaissance. Renaissance, as you know, means rebirth. Rebirth of what? Of the pro-reason, pro-man, pro-this-world attitude. It is the return of man to life on earth after more than a millennium of supernaturalism. Now, it was not complete. The Renaissance, judged by today's standards, compared to today as a highly religious period. During the Renaissance, men typically did not dispute the existence of God, or the veracity of revelations, or original sin, or the incarnation, or the whole slew of dogmas. They simply didn't focus on them anymore in anything like the manner that they had prior to the Renaissance. 
Religion did not stop, but it stopped dominating people's lives. It was still there. It simply wasn't the controlling factor anymore. If we can borrow Nietzsche's expression where he claims that God died in the 19th century, actually he died in the 18th, but <coughs> and we carry out that metaphor, and it's just a metaphor, of course, you could say the Renaissance is the time when God got seriously ill. <laughs> he had his first major heart attack. And he was destined never to recover. He slowly wasted away across the subsequent centuries. As a fundamental, controlling, exclusive concern in human life, religious supernaturalism died in the Renaissance, never to recover. So the rest of our story as far as we have time for it this evening, consists of indicating what happened after Aquinas. In other words, after Aristotle and reason had been let loose. Now the ground had already uh, been laid in Aquinas' separation of philosophy from theology, with the implication that philosophy had its own realm to study and was not merely a handmaiden of theology. However, in Aquinas, the full meaning of this was not yet explicit. He still had the realm of natural theology. Remember where the two circles overlap, philosophy and theology. The part of theology which uh, comes from God's revelation, but which you can also prove independently by reason, in his opinion. And Aquinas considered this natural theology the really important part of philosophy. So for Aquinas, even though the philosopher does function in method independently of dogma, his most important goal in content is still to try to prove, on the basis of sense, experience, and reason, as much of the dogma as he can. What had to happen for the Renaissance to occur was for Aquinas' two spheres, his two circles of uh, philosophy and theology, to fall apart altogether so that there was no more natural theology, so that nothing in theology could be proved by philosophy. When this occurred, philosophy lost all connection, all essential connection with theology, and the whole scholastic enterprise therefore collapsed. Theological issues were no longer of relevance to the philosopher. They were matters of faith incapable of rational discussion. Philosophers became men who studied this world on the basis of sense, experience, and reason. Their conclusions didn't bear on theology. And theologians studied God's world on the basis of faith and revelations, and their views were simply no longer relevant to philosophy. It was like Kipling's East and West, the twain would never meet. Once this occurred, philosophy once and for all lost its bondage to theology and set up on its own. And we had then the birth of modern science and modern philosophy. Now, there were many, many, many smaller currents responsible for this separation of philosophy from theology, but the two philosophers most responsible for this separation were both ardent Catholics after Aquinas. Duns Scotus, D-U-N-S Scotus, uh, who is 1270 to 1310, and William of Ockham, O-C-C-A-M, if you want to use that spelling, who is 1280 to 1350. And let us look briefly at each of these. They're transition figures from Aquinas to the Renaissance. Dun Scotus, as I say, 1270 to 1310, was a true scholastic. <coughs> he excelled in subtle hair-splitting distinctions. 
in his effort to reconcile the various authorities, make sense out of the Christian dogmas, and especially to reconcile Christianity with Aristotle. He was known as the subtle doctor because of his skill at making subtle distinctions. And our word dunce, D-U-N-C-E, is the name that we has come down as representing this type of mentality. It's named after Duns. But that isn't really fair, because Duns was a mixed case philosophically. In part, he was very much influenced by Aristotle. In part, he is a typical devout religious scholastic. Insofar as he is Aristotelian, he preached with Aquinas that all knowledge begins with experience. There is no innate ideas. Concepts are arrived at by abstraction from experience. He insisted with Aquinas that there are many types of knowledge that can be arrived at by man entirely on his own, by his own secular natural reason, without any need for divine illumination or divine assistance. On the issue of natural theology, Duns is the first important voice of the future because he very much shrunk the domain of natural theology. You cannot, he argued, prove the existence of the soul in reason. That you have to accept on faith. You can prove the existence of a God of sorts in reason, he thought, but not the God of Christianity. Not an all-powerful providential God, as Aquinas had thought, that too has to go into faith. And that was a big blow to natural theology. Moreover, he held, and here we come to the more mystic side of his view, it is an impious limitation on God to try to explain what he does by reference to reason. Aquinas had held that in God, the intellect, the divine intellect, was prior or more basic than the will. God's intellect, he held, had primacy over God's will. This is Aquinas. Aquinas had said that first, God, his intellect, knows the rational and the good. And then, as an inevitable consequence, God's will decrees that what the intellect has grasped be enacted. Duns Scotus repudiates this view of Aquinas, and on good grounds. The Thomistic position, he says, amounts to an infringement of God's omnipotence. If God must will, as his intellect declares, then God's will is restricted by his intellect. God has lost his all-powerful sovereignty and omnipotence. He has to go by reason, you see, which was Aquinas' view. And, says Duns Scotus, this is intolerable. Aquinas, you see, held that reason is irresistible to man and to God. Duns reminds him that if you're to be a true Christian, God comes above reason. And therefore, his will must be absolutely free to will whatever it jolly well chooses, without any reasons at all. God has to have a free will, just like Epicurus's concept of the swerve. He simply decrees because he decrees. And therefore, concluded Duns, man cannot hope to make sense out of God's will or its enactments. And therefore, he thought there's not much point in trying to apply reason to religious questions. Theology is essentially a matter of faith. You see how that tended to shrivel the domain of natural theology. 
This viewpoint, by the way, that the will has primacy over the intellect is known as voluntarism. V-O-L-U-N-T-A-R-I-S-M from the Latin voluntas, meaning will. And in SCOTUS, it's a divine voluntarism because it's God will that's more basic. When you get to Freud, uh, in the 19th century, it becomes a human voluntarism. The id is the will, and it's a seething demoniacal force at the base of man, which is more basic than his intellect. But that's many centuries of corruption later. <laughs> Duns Scotus, I should say, was inconsistent. He thought God was limited by the law of identity. Even if he's omnipotent, he said God can't will a contradiction, and that limits him to some extent. Now, Duns applied the same voluntarist viewpoint to ethics. St. Thomas had said that God commands certain things to man because God sees that those are good. Scotus says, oh no, they are good because God commands them, not the other way around. Otherwise, you limit God. God, says Scotus, could have willed the opposite of what he did. And then that opposite by virtue of being willed by God, would have been the good. Here again, the net effect is to make religious ethics unintelligible to the human mind, and therefore outside the province or interest of philosophy. And again, you see the systematic falling apart of Aquinas' two realms of philosophy and theology. After Duns, these two realms essentially cease overlapping. Instead of one supplementing the other, they simply become separated, become virtually unrelated fields. I should point out again on ethics, Duns Scotus is inconsistent. The Ten Commandments, he thinks, are implicit in the law of identity, and God therefore had no choice about them. That is a real feat. I'd love to see somebody deduce the Ten Commandments from the law of identity. <laughs> All right, and now a few words on William of Ockham, 1280 to 1350. Ockham is a very interesting figure that we have no time for. He's an interesting figure because he blends the most radically diverse approaches to philosophy. He is an Aristotelian in many ways. He's also a devout Catholic, scholastic, and he's also got definite skeptic elements. So if you had to quantify him for some Pythagorean, I'd say he's about two parts Aristotle, two parts Augustine, and one part ancient skeptic, all blended. <clears throat> something on the order of John Locke but in a different form as to his Aristotelianism he was a thorough empiricist all knowledge begins with sense experience man is born tabula rasa uh, his theory of universals is basically Aristotelian but with a tendency to nominalism you remember the skeptic view that there are no universals uh, we'll see nominalism gaining ascendancy starting next week. You'll be sick of nominalism after next week. In fact, many people call Occam the father of modern nominalism. I think this is incorrect. He combines elements of Aristotle's view on universals with elements of a kind of skeptic nominalism. But if you read him selectively, you could call him a very big influence on the production of modern nominalism but that doesn't do justice to his own view. Uh, if you want another skeptic element in uh, William of Ockham, he held that since God is all-powerful, we can't be sure there is any external world at all underlying our sense experiences. 
Maybe, he says, God has simply produced our sense experiences in our minds directly, and there really is no world out there at all. Now, of course, he didn't believe this because faith told him that God had created the world. But in reason, he said it's a possibility. And that, of course, is the standard skeptic position. And as some of you know, in a somewhat different form, it was, became the official viewpoint of philosophers like Bishop Barclay and Leibniz, whom we'll get to in a few weeks. In general, however, Aristotelianism is the thrust of much of William of Ockham's philosophy. He represents the completion of the tendency for theology and philosophy to separate entirely. Philosophy, says Ockham, must concern itself exclusively with facts known by sense experience and reasoning therefrom. Philosophy is the science of this earth. Theology, on the other hand, now remember, he accepted theology devoutly, but he said it's completely beyond reason and it's a mistake to try to make any sense of it at all, a viewpoint, of course, in which he's entirely correct. Reason, he says, cannot prove the existence of God, any kind of God let alone the Christian one. Nor can it prove the existence of the soul, let alone its immortality. Reason, he says, cannot make any sense whatever of the Catholic dogmas. You simply must have faith. For all we can see in reason, God, he says, this is his example, could have become incarnate as an ass instead of a man. You have to have faith, that's all. Nor, he insists, should philosophers appeal to supernatural entities to explain the facts they observe. If we are in philosophy, he says, then we have to throw out the occult, throw out the demons and the ghosts and the devils and the angels, all of which we believe on faith, but that's theology, not philosophy. In philosophy, we go by facts. And he uttered in this connection a truly famous principle, Entia non multiplicanda sunt praeter necessitatem. Entities are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. Entities are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. A principle known as Occam's razor. <coughs> the meaning is do not make up arbitrary entities and then appeal to them as explanations of facts. If you can explain a fact strictly by appealing to natural entities, to things you observe, do not multiply entities uselessly and start appealing to a whole galaxy of disreputable supernatural entities. And it's called Occam's razor because it slashes that whole occult dimension out. It says, get rid of them. We don't need them. Now, Occam's razor has been very influential since his time. And I simply say this, in the form in which I presented it to you, it's very valid and very important. It, however, depends entirely for its interpretation on what you mean by necessity. It says entities are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. Now, if you start getting rid of entities right and left, whether they're necessary or not on the grounds of Occam's razor, then you simply cut your throat with Occam's razor. And that, of course, is what all the moderns do with it. So they use it in ways that Occam wouldn't have dreamed of doing. But as Occam intended it, it's a valid and important principle. <coughs> now, I might note finally on Occam that he carried the voluntarism of Scotus to its, Duns Scotus, to its consistent extreme. God, he said, is not limited even by the law of identity. And therefore, again, it's senseless to try to make sense of theology. 
God could have commanded, he says, even the opposite of the Ten Commandments. He could have made murder a virtue. He could have made lusting after your neighbor's wife a virtue. He could have made hating God a virtue. And if he had, then of course it would be our religious duty to practice those activities. The commandments that we have as of now are just a function of God's arbitrary will and have to be accepted on faith. Again, there's no use trying to make sense of God by reason. Now you see by this point there's an unbridgeable gulf between faith and reason. Now the final seal on this gulf was placed by the rampant mystics of the period, of which there were many. You may have heard of Meister Eckhart, a rampant, frenetic, bizarre medieval mystic, beloved of the Nazis, I may say, many centuries later. And you may have heard of Nicholas of Cusa. Now these men agreed that sensation is the basis of human knowledge and that reason is based on sense, sense experience and they said reason therefore can only know this world. If we want to know God, we have to have a super neoplatonic mystic ecstatic union with a transcendent unspeakable dimension. <laughs> now if you heard enough of this, uh, that simply reinforces the view that if you're going to go by reason, you better say goodbye to God. If you want a taste of what these mystics offered, here is Windelbond's summary of some of the typical mystic doctrines of this period. Now don't say you don't follow it because it's as clear or as unclear as it ever will get. <laughs> Quote, this is Windelbond's summary. Quote, of just one typical doctrine. The goal of all life is the knowledge of God, but knowing is being. It is the community of life and of being with that which is known. If the soul would know God, it must be God. It must cease to be itself. It must renounce not only sin in the world, but itself also. It must strip off all its acquired knowledge. As the deity is nothing, so it is apprehended only in this knowledge that is a not knowing. And as nothing, that nothing, is the original ground of all reality, so this not knowing is the highest, the most blessed contemplation." Unquote, etc. Now you see how stuff like this would drive people to reason. <laughs> and away from theology. Now I'll mention one more step in the collapse of the medieval's precarious attempt to reconcile faith and reason, and that was the doctrine of the twofold truth, as it was called. It was accepted by many people, including the followers of Averroes. Remember the 12th century Mohammedan Aristotelian commentator I referred to. The doctrine of twofold truth held that faith and reason were inherently in conflict, in contradiction. That, they that there are two orders of truth, the truth in theology and the truth in philosophy. And that the very same idea can be true in philosophy but false in theology and vice versa. Now this, of course, was a charter of liberty to all the thinkers who used it. They could pursue the boldest course intellectually, come up with doctrines in blatant defiance of the church teachings. And when the authorities raced in to challenge them, they would say, well, of course I'm not challenging the church. I only say my doctrines are true in philosophy. Of course they're not true in theology. There's two truths. Now you see how this helped further to secularize philosophy to make it the subject of reason. Now, if I can interject a comment of my own in the doctrine of twofold truth, you see the ultimate result 
of Aquinas' forlorn attempt to reconcile reason and faith. The two have come to confront each other as naked opponents. Now there's a deeper epistemological reason why such a clash had to develop. It's not an accident. Why it's hopeless to attempt to reconcile faith and reason even on the lines attempted by Aquinas. And his is, of course, the noblest and best attempt. Remember Aquinas had said there'd never be a conflict because faith can speak only where reason is silent, where the evidence for or against something is non-existent, and therefore we fill in the gaps by faith. Now what is wrong with this? The answer is reason is never silent. Reason is never silent. It always has something to say. When there is no evidence for a viewpoint, then the principle of reason is the onus of proof principle. The onus of proof is on the man who asserts that something exists, the man who asserts the positive. If there's no evidence for the positive, your rational obligation is to accept the negative and say in that context of knowledge the thing doesn't exist. That's the rational position. To tell a man that he can have faith in the positive <coughs> because there's no evidence either way is therefore to tell him he must violate the method of reason at its root. In other words, he must violate the commitment to going by evidence. And such a contradiction of reason at its root will necessarily express itself sooner or later throughout the content of your conclusions, so that faith will come out as in systematic conflict with reason. In a word, you cannot combine faith with reason any more than you can combine God with this world or Aristotle's ethics with the Sermon on the Mount. It is one or the other across the board. As soon as this discovery developed firmly enough in enough people, we reached that attitude of mind which led to the Renaissance. The attempt to apply reason to God had failed in spite of centuries of effort and men's alternatives were increasingly either to revert to Tertullian, and some of them did, as we'll see shortly, or else to turn their reason away from God and back to this earth. Aristotle's treatises had shown them how much you could learn about the physical world just by observing and studying it, which was a revolutionary discovery in that era, and irresistible to the better minds after the centuries of barren scholasticism. There was an awakening of Aristotle's scientific mood and interests. Men began to expend their energies on, in behalf of life on earth, to observe, to reason, to invent, to explore, progressively to seek their own self-development, their own welfare, and to discover how much was possible to them on earth. If I may read a few paragraphs from a commentator who says it very eloquently. Quote, in the Middle Ages, it is fair to say, man had submitted to nature as he found her. It had not occurred to him that he could control her, and by harnessing her to his uses, improve his natural lot. Or when the possibility of such control did enter his mind, it appeared as magic, and all attempts to actualize it were promptly condemned by the church as an invocation of Satan's aid against God's purposes and as the practice of a black art. But now the discovery that nature could be manipulated at will by experiment and thus made subservient to human ends was sure to be followed by the discovery that her forces could be mastered and her ways altered by man to suit his preferences. 
This awakened sense of power over nature went hand in hand with the sense of the self-sufficiency and dignity of the natural man, which was one of the great characteristics of the Renaissance. The 14th century is as much a prologue to the Renaissance as it is an epilogue to medieval thought. It was a stir with the naturalism, scientific, moral, and philosophical, that was to color and direct the thinking of the next two centuries. It was groping towards the great discoveries in astronomy and physics, which were so soon to be made and which were so profoundly to influence the new speculation. It had prepared their advent and their acceptance by breaking in large measure the shackles of the past. It had sown the seeds of doubt respecting the necessity of reckoning with anything supernatural in the conduct and the salvation of human life. It had asserted the power of the unaided human reason to work out satisfactory solutions of the manifold problems with which humanity was confronted." Unquote. Now when this attitude described by Fuller sunk in deeply enough in enough minds, the Middle Ages were over and the rebirth began. And so we have reached the Renaissance. Now the Renaissance is essentially the 15th and 16th centuries. By the time you reach the late 16th century, early 17th, you're out of the Renaissance into the modern world. Into specifically the beginning of modern philosophy as a distinctive uh, development. Some people date the Renaissance from 1453, but that is preposterous. You may as well say it started on high noon on a Tuesday. It's a fundamental philosophic attitude and it stretches across centuries, 15th and 16th century. Now an Atlas Shrugged Ayn Rand writes, quote, the road of human history was a string of blank outs over sterile stretches eroded by faith and force with only a few brief bursts of sunlight when the released energy of the men of the mind performed the wonders you gaped at, admired, and promptly extinguished again, unquote. Well, we have just come through a long, sterile stretch eroded by faith and force in our survey of the dark and middle ages. Now it is our pleasure to examine the achievements of one of the few bursts of sunlight in human history. Now our pleasure is going to be diluted because we'll see the seeds of the next era of faith and force being planted again right from the beginning. We'll see the forces at work to extinguish the wonders released during this period. But let's at least look briefly at the wonders for a moment. Philosophically, the Renaissance is an age dominated by three fundamental tenets. In metaphysics, this world is fully real and intelligible to man. In epistemology, man's means of knowledge is sense experience and reason on its basis. In ethics, the goal of life is happiness on earth to be achieved by developing one's capacities and one's intellect to the fullest. All of these are Aristotelian, passed on via Aquinas. In this sense, the Renaissance is at root an Aristotelian period. Now I said, and I say again, it was not complete, it was not self-consistent. You would be shocked at how religious they were in the Renaissance in comparison to the atheism which is the essential undercurrent of 20th century Western civilization. They believed in God, in the Bible, the church, the afterlife, faith, revelation, the whole bit. But it was no longer the dominant cultural force. 
The attitude in effect was, yes, this is all true, but now let's get down to business. As a cultural force, mysticism died in the Renaissance. Now there's a danger in thus accepting but just uh, uh, putting to one side all of this religion. For one thing, it prevents people from forming a rational new ethics. And the Renaissance in that respect was a chaotic, licentious, brutal, deceitful age. People didn't put forth a new ethics, they simply blindly rebelled against the old one and they became sophists in reaction to Plato. That's what it amounts to. Uh, and of course, that then gives ample room for people to say, you see what happens when you leave religion. We need to reassert the old code. So I don't mean to suggest that this is a safe view. In fact, it's this view which ultimately led to the downfall of the Renaissance. Nevertheless, let us look at some of the achievements of the Renaissance. And perhaps its greatest achievement was its view of the ideal man. The ideal man was no longer St. Francis. The emphasis was on all-round development of man's faculties, on human dignity, self-respect, pride, culture, achievement. Man was regarded as a self-sufficient, responsible, independent entity, and he should fulfill his potentialities for reason. Now, I can't resist paying a brief tribute in passing to the man who is to the Renaissance what St. Francis is to the medieval period, Leonardo da Vinci. 1452 to 1519. He is not a philosopher, only a universal genius. <laughs> but uh, needless to say, it is not the case that everyone in the Renaissance was like him any more than that everyone in the Renaissance was in the medieval period was like St. Francis. But they're two perfect symbols to contrast two different views of life. While one was doing all the things I'm about to read, the other was busy drinking laundry water and plunging in the snow heaps. <laughs> Here is one commentator's description of Leonardo <clears throat> under the heading Universal Genius. Quote, Strong, handsome, skilled in all athletic exercises, an accomplished musician, completely a man of the world, the friend of kings and princes, and endowed with an extraordinary personal charm and magnetism, uh, Leonardo would by these qualities alone have satisfied the standards set for the perfect Renaissance gentleman. Clad, however, in this outward magnificence, walked probably the most universal genius of all time. I enter the brief demur of Aristotle there. And then he goes on to discuss his painting, his work in architecture, military innovations, the system of canals, his efforts to invent flying machines, submarine boats, devices for enabling man to walk on water. And then he continues, quote, Leonardo was not simply a supreme artist and inventive genius. His inventions, like his art, were incidental to a consuming curiosity regarding the structure and operations of nature. And then he goes on to detail his discoveries in the field of pure science, his investigation of the laws of perspective and chiaroscuro. Uh, he was led to the verge of the laws of inertia and acceleration, the molecular theory of liquids, the undulatory theory of light and of sound, etc., etc. There isn't even time to itemize the table of contents. <laughs> and what was his attitude to the church? Quote, Although he lived and died at peace with the church, Leonardo, like many another man of the Renaissance, took his Catholicism with a grain of salt. 
By temperament a spectator, he was amused or disgusted rather than outraged by the abuses that were so soon to precipitate the Protestant and the Counter-Reformations. But he openly expresses his contempt of the monks, of the cultists of the Virgin and the saints, and of the sale of indulgences, discredits the story of the flood, and apparently denies the divinity of Christ. His whole attitude is well summed up in his remark that if we are doubtful of the evidence of our senses, we may well be still more doubtful of things of which there is no sensible evidence. <laughs> like the being of God and the soul and other such things about which people are always disputing and contradicting one another. And jumping to his conclusion, quote, such was Leonardo da Vinci, courtier, athlete, musician, painter, sculptor, architect, hydraulic, civil, mechanical, military, and naval engineer, inventor, mathematician, physicist, astronomer, geologist, biologist, botanist, physiologist, philosopher, a mind forever voyaging through strange seas of thought alone, unquote. Now, when you reach a period where such a man is possible and universally admired, you are not in the medieval period anymore. <laughs> now, I won't say anything about the artistic accomplishments of the Renaissance. Go sometime and look at a series of medieval paintings and then look at something by Michelangelo and uh, that will speak much more eloquently than any lecture I can give you. I want to say a word on the inventions of this period. It was during this period that the compound microscope was invented, the telescope, the thermometer, the barometer, the air pump, clocks uh, were greatly improved, and of course all of this made possible the development of modern science, the precise instrumentation. A crucial invention was of course Gutenberg's printing press, which made the communication of ideas open to virtually everybody as against the medieval period where you had costly monk-copied, hand-copied manuscripts. The printing press was the catalyst that made thought result in action in a speed and in a manner unprecedented hitherto. It took Christianity, you see, four centuries from Jesus till the time of its dominance because it couldn't use the printing press. It uh, took Marx much less time. Of course, it wasn't only the printing press. He had all the centuries of Christianity also to rely on. <laughs> but still, uh, uh, the whole intellectual process has been enormously speeded up since the printing press. And of course, television is simply a continuation of that phenomenon. It, what the printing press did is open up the possibility of education and the world of thought to everybody rather than just the rich. As to exploration, this of course is also the period when the surface of the earth was opened up. In 1492, as you know, Columbus discovered the new continent, America. You also know probably that during this period Vasco da Gama rounded the Cape of Good Hope. Magellan founded an expedition which resulted in the circumnavigation of the globe. And you can't underestimate the importance of that either, the impact of it. When Columbus took off, everybody told him he'd fall off the end of the world. The idea was the world was flat. If you went too far, you'd go over the end. Man was regarded as having an absolutely circumscribed position. He must not venture. According to something I read, Columbus had a map maker. And all the parts that they didn't know where it was, they simply put the word terror on the map. <laughs> His principle was, where unknown, there place terror. 
and you get an idea what the world is like. Now, it was in the Renaissance that uh, we had, for the first time, the idea of a wide-open, intelligible world in the narrowest physical sense. The map came to be known. It was safe to take voyages. The world was open to man's conquest and enjoyment. Even picnics is a Renaissance phenomenon, <laughs> where you go out and commune with nature and enjoy the grass as an end in itself not because you want to give testimony to God's horticultural powers. <laughs> now, on the social-political level, with the loss of authority of the church, and that, of course, is with a loss abetted by the Protestants that we'll get to in a second, you find the rise of the nation-state, so it becomes meaningful to talk of France, Germany, England, as again simply Christendom. Uh, national languages progressively became in fashion and uh, that was of course helped by the printing press also and gradually the monastic Latin fell into decay. The feudal order broke up, money began to be used for investment, economic profit became a goal, trade became freer and on a comparatively worldwide basis. Now it is not as some alleged historians say, a period of capitalism. It was a period of absolute monarchy politically. There were still social classes, aristocracy by law and so on. All that you can say is that the guild feudal system was definitely breaking up and with America and the Industrial Revolution, capitalism did come into existence. But that is still several centuries away. Nevertheless, this was, the Renaissance was a comparatively freer period politically. It was less status conscious than the medieval, more individualistic. It was not the freedom of the stability of a rational constitution, but the freedom of chaos. But at least it had it to that extent. The groundwork began slowly to be laid for what would centuries later become capitalism in the United States. Now, before our break, let us look at the big religious development in the Renaissance, and that is the Protestant Reformation. Famous name, of course, associated with this is Luther and Calvin. I didn't copy Calvin's dates down, but he's right around Luther. Luther is 1483 to 1546. Now, you must have heard of the abuses of the Catholic Church, the tyranny of the clergy. The, uh, their amassing of wealth by exactions from the pop, uh, populace, the sale of indulgence, promising heavenly forgiveness if only you paid enough money, and uh, that goes for your dear departed ones in the other world also. If you pay enough, you can promote them in heaven. And uh, give you an idea of what went on in the medieval period and in the period in the Catholics at this time. Quote, in 1517, the following scale of fees was charged for an indulgence, get the hierarchy of values is also interesting, for an indulgence in a case of sodomy, 12 ducats, for sacrilege, 9 ducats, for murder, 7, <laughs> for witchcraft, 6, and so on down the line. Here is a sentence or two from one of Tetzel's sermons. He was the dispenser of these indulgences in a certain town. Here is a quote from one of his sermons. Quote, Do you not hear your dead parents crying out, Have mercy upon us? Your dead parents. 
We are in sore pain and you can set us free for a mere pittance. We have borne you. We have trained you and educated you. We have left you all our property. And you are so hard-hearted and cruel that you leave us to roast in the flames when you could so easily release us." Unquote. Now that's what you call a religious abuse. <laughs> and of course there was all the hypocrisy, the reliance on pomp, and sacraments and rituals so that God in effect fell into the background. Uh, there was the blatant corruption of the papacy. Leo X in the 16th century is supposed to have said to his brother, quote, God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it, unquote. <laughs> now this is what the Reformation was rebelling against. And it caught on. Monks deserted their monasteries. Priests got married. Churches were invaded. The images were broken. The rituals were parodied. And Christianity was irrevocably split in two between its Catholic, which was no longer Catholic, you see, because Catholic means universal, and its protesters. What was the philosophy of Protestantism? Well, it really had no organized, systematized philosophy. Its basic principle was the right of each man to read the Bible and commune with God directly and personally, to understand God's message on his own and in his own way, without benefit of clergy or formalized systems of dogma, particularly without benefit of Thomism or scholasticism, which uh, Luther was violently opposed to. Now, I may say that initially the persecutions by the Protestants of dissenters were as strong, if not more so, than those of the Catholics, if you disagreed with any particular conclusion they came to. But eventually their very lack of formalized dogma proved a liberating influence and was a significant factor contributing to freedom of thought. There were continual sects splitting off or forming new interpretations. And without a formalized dogma, you couldn't in the long run accuse these sects of heresy and sin. And if you look at Protestantism, you see the endless proliferation of sects uh, uh, as against Catholicism, which has rides a rigid control over what you can and can't believe. Now, you may be surprised to learn that the actual philosophy of the founders of Protestantism, people like Luther and Calvin, was a reversion to the very, very worst of the medieval views, uh, to Augustine and beyond. Uh, Luther linked the corruption of the church with its Aristotelianism, with its this-worldly attitude. He thought Aristotle was monstrous. He referred to him at one point as, quote, that damnable, proud, cunning, heathen Aristotle, unquote. He wanted a real, uncompromising religion, and he sure got it. He all but outdid Augustine in preaching that man was thoroughly depraved and sinful, absolutely dependent on God's mercy for entering heaven. There was nothing man could do on his own to earn entry into heaven. Everything was rigidly predestined, completely determined. He says somewhere, I wish the word free will had never been invented. Uh, everything is completely a function of God's plan and man is entirely at God's mercy. His doctrine was, of course, that works are unimportant. In other words, what you do and how you live are not essential. 
but that you have faith and believe in God and in the Gospels. Faith overworks, is Luther's big principle. Faith unadulterated by reason, ritual, or action was the cardinal tenet. And, of course, under the influence of Luther, Protestant theologians to this day, like Reinhold Niebuhr, for instance, are infinitely worse than Catholic theologians uh, who are still, to some extent, controlled by uh, Thomas Aquinas. Now, the best thing for Luther is to take five minutes and let him speak for himself, because he writes clearly, and whatever you say about him, he's not mealy-mouthed. In epistemology... Quote, Aristotle is to theology as darkness to light. Unquote. What about reason? Quote, Reason is the devil's harlot and can do nothing but slander and harm all that God does and says. If outside of Christ you wish by your own thoughts to know your relation to God, you will break your neck Thunder strikes him who examines. It is Satan who tells us what God is, and by doing so, he will draw you into the abyss. Therefore, keep to revelation and do not try to understand. Unquote. Pretty clear. He says somewhere else, um, I didn't bring it, but he says somewhere, whoever wants to be a Christian must tear the eyes out of his reason. And that's true. Um, what about his metaphysics? Well, quote, we are not masters of our actions from the beginning to the end. We are slaves. In other words, complete determinism. Free will after the fall is nothing but a word. In other words, Adam had free will, but it's gone now. Man must completely despair of himself in order to become fit to obtain the grace of Christ. This false idea of free will is a real threat to salvation and a delusion fraught with the most perilous consequences. He's a full-fledged voluntarist, as you would expect. Quote, God is inscrutable and unknowable will. Of God's will there is no cause nor reason. There is nothing equal or superior to it. It in itself is the rule of all things. If there were for it any rule or measure or cause or reason, it wouldn't be the will of God. Not because he ought to will thus is that right which he wills. On the contrary, because he wills thus is that right which he wills. That's the straight voluntarist position. What about man? Quote, by nature all of us are liars born of original sin and blindness. Well, if you're that rotten, what should you do? Quote, cursed and condemned is every kind of life lived and sought for selfish profit and good. Cursed are all works not done in love, but they are done in love when they are directed wholeheartedly, not toward selfish pleasure, profit, honor, and welfare, but toward the profit, honor, and welfare of others. What happens to your uh, body is unimportant. Quote, of what benefit is it to the soul that the body is free, is hale and hearty, that it eats, drinks, and lives as it pleases? 
On the other hand, what harm comes to the soul from the fact that the body is in bondage, is sick and weary, hungers, thirsts, suffers? The influence of none of these things extends to the soul, unquote. And therefore, don't worry about the body. Now, uh, politically, as you would expect, Luther is a rabid authoritarian. Just a brief quote. Fear and trust God. God has commanded that you should honor the government. Even if you despise the government for other reasons, you dare not do so any longer because of the word of God. Unquote. God, the governments are ordained by God and your duty is absolute blind obedience to the secular power. Beyond that, Luther was a fervent German nationalist, a fervent anti-Semite, quote, from a work called On the Jews and Their Lies. Fie on you, fie on you, wherever you be, you damn Jews. <laughs> who dare to clasp this earnest, glorious, consoling word of God to your maggoty, mortal, miserly belly <laughs> and are not ashamed to display your greed so openly." Unquote. In short, Luther is a really nice guy, as you say. <laughs> Calvin is just as nice. Now, the ultimate net result of all this, paradoxically, was nevertheless positive. <laughs> because the lack of a formalized dogma, the emphasis on the liberty of the individual conscience, uh, was enormously anti-authoritarian. It broke up the monopoly of the Catholic Church, and Protestantism could never establish an equivalent monopoly. Moreover, the philosophy of Protestantism, and particularly its morality, is so extreme, so anti-reason, so anti-life, that it simply can't be lived by. And of course, the emphasis on faith over works suggests you don't have to live by it. It's not how you live, it's what your faith is that counts. So that the effect of Protestantism was to separate religion and life. Aquinas had tried to reconcile reason and religion so that you could actually practice religion here on earth. Protestantism separated the two so far that you simply had to live your life without much reference to religion and then go to church on Sundays. And the result is that although Protestantism philosophically is much worse than Catholicism given Aquinas, Protestant countries are generally more this earth, more independent, more rational, and more productive than Catholic countries. And so you have England, United States, Germany, for instance, as against Italy, Spain, South America. France, I may say, is untypical in this respect. Well, so much for Luther. Uh, you see that Hitler knew perfectly well what he was doing when he made Luther's birthday an official Nazi holiday. Uh, let us take our break at this point. All right, let us continue with the Renaissance. <coughs> Our theme now is the rediscovery of antiquity. Just as the spatial boundaries on earth were opened up, so were the frontiers of time opened up. In the dark ages, as you know, men in the west were ignorant of the ancient world and its achievements. 
by the time of the Renaissance, antiquity was rediscovered in all of its glory. They unearthed the manuscripts of the pagans, they translated them. Virtually everything we have today came to be known during the Renaissance. And almost all the schools of the ancient world flourished again. There was the standard controversies between the Aristotelians, the Platonists, the Neoplatonists, the Pythagoreans, the Atomists, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Sophists, the Skeptics. For the first 100, 150, even 200 years of the modern world, until the 17th century, there was nothing new philosophically. That period consists of the revival of Greek philosophies and the supplanting of the medieval tradition. Sometimes put, it's the period when the West went to school for two centuries to the schools of ancient Greece, relearning what was known in the ancient world. Of course, there were still theologians and scholastics in abundance, but their time was progressively up. Now, such philosophy as there was during the Renaissance, you may be surprised to learn, was Platonism in one form or another. There was every kind of view that the world is the body of God, pantheism, neoplatonism, excessive mysticism, a lot of alchemy, magic. It was in effect an eclectic, chaotic period intellectually with a pronounced bent toward Platonism. Now why? The answer is a tragic, tragic irony. Aristotle was identified as the philosopher of the scholastics a philosopher of the Catholic Church, owing, of course, to the scholastics' appropriation of him. And consequently, the rebellion against the Church and against Catholicism took the form of a rebellion against Aristotle, whom everybody just about, not everybody, but most people, package-dealed with the Church. And this is one of the most tragic ironies in history, from which we are still suffering to this day. And will it, it will explain to you why superficial commentators refer to the Renaissance as the period in which Platonism rules and Aristotle is supplanted. Poets had the effrontery to write poems on the hero who slayed the tyrant Aristotle, etc. Now this package deal was deliberately fostered by the church. They would sometimes take specific theories from Aristotle's physics, not his philosophy, but his physics. Theories which Aristotle would have been the first to abandon if he'd seen the evidence against them. And then the church or the scholastics would refuse to consider the evidence, blindly adhere to Aristotle's specific scientific theories in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and proceed to persecute, torture, and even kill the philosophers and scientists of the period, quote, in the name of Aristotle. Many of the deaths of the Inquisition were perpetrated in the name of Aristotelianism. Now, for instance, Pomponazzi, who was a good Aristotelian of the period, had a disciple, Vanini, who was burned at the stake. Giordano Bruno preached that the earth is not at the center of the uh, heavens. He was burned at the stake. Campanella, a very strongly religious, mystical Platonist, was set, sentenced to 27 years in jail. Galileo, of course, as you know, was forced to recant his views. It was not just the specific, incorrect uh, scientific or astronomical theories of Aristotle, moreover, that the church did this with. The philosophic ideas of Aristotle <coughs> were thoroughly distorted to mean something quite different from what Aristotle had meant. 
and then used allegedly in the name of Aristotle to fight the scientists and the independent thinkers. For instance, to give you one example, you remember Aristotle had said there are self-evident axioms, but he had gone on to say that these must be carefully defined based on sensory evidence, limited to those which you can prove objectively are self-evident, and so on. Now, in the hands of many church Aristotelians, not the Thomists, of course, who are much more sophisticated, but in the hands of many of these church Aristotelians, it became the idea we can start from any premises which appeal to us and erect floating systems regardless of observational evidence. And if one of these systems is opposed by factual evidence, so much the worse for the evidence. Now, you have no idea the mentalities at work here. For instance, when Galileo discovered the four moons of Jupiter, prior to that there had only been five planets, the sun and the moon, in other words, seven heavenly bodies, not counting the stars. Now, seven, of course, as you know, is a sacred number. The Sabbath is the seventh day. Candlesticks have seven branches. There are seven major churches in Asia, and so on. Now, some of these people refuse to look through the telescope. Here's a quote from a professor of philosophy at Padua, who refused to look through Galileo's telescope to see the satellites of Jupiter. Here's what he said, quote, There are seven windows given to animals in the domicile of the head. Two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth, two ears, seven. From this and many other similarities in nature, such as the seven metals, etc., which it would be tedious to enumerate, we gather that the number of planets is necessarily seven. Moreover, these alleged satellites of Jupiter are invisible to the naked eye. Get the progression here. And therefore can exercise no influence on the Earth, and therefore would be useless, and therefore do not exist. <laughs> Besides, from the earliest times, men have adopted the division of the week into seven days and have named them after the seven planets. Now if we increase the number of planets, this whole and beautiful system falls to the ground." <laughs> Unquote. Now, when this sort of thing passes for Aristotelianism, it is no wonder that there is a rebellion. But then it's not a rebellion against Aristotle, regardless of what it's called. Now, during the Renaissance, this rebellion took two predominant forms. One trend, as I already mentioned, was the Platonist trend. Nothing original at all, just eclectic mystical Platonists. The second was the rebellion of the scientists. The men who were on the premise down with books, systems, theories, whether Aristotelian, Platonist, or any other. Let us go to the facts. As they put it, let us study the book of nature, not the books of men. Let us sweep aside all the traditional views and go to the things themselves for an unprejudiced examination of their character by observation and unaided reason. Let's start from scratch, scrap everything and found philosophy and science once and for all on firm foundations. Now, of course, the men of science, in spite of themselves, were influenced by philosophy. They couldn't escape it in part insofar as they were truly scientists by Aristotle, but of course also in part, unfortunately, by Plato and Platonism, which was everywhere in the atmosphere. Now these two trends interacted. The Platonists had to make terms with science, and their great attempt was Descartes next week. As for the scientists, I'm sorry I can't call them Aristotelians, because they were mixed from the beginning, 
and they slowly, gradually merged into the sophist school centuries later. That is to say, the philosophers of science, the working scientists, not so badly. Now we're going to look at science now and continue uh, with it after some lectures on Descartes and his followers. But for tonight, I want now to turn to the development of modern science, and I'd like you to look at both the good and the bad elements in this philosophy, in the philosophy of modern science as it develops. It was, of course, science, the great achievement of this period, and the most influential philosophically. Let's look at a few of the key figures and spokesmen for the new science. <clears throat> Copernicus. 1474 to 1543. Now we've talked about opening up the world, and this is the key to the times. If the Kennedy administration hadn't taken it over, I would say the slogan of the Renaissance is new frontiers. <laughs> Invention unlocks the secrets of nature. Exploration unlocks the surface of the earth. Research unlocks antiquity. Well, Copernicus unlocked the astronomical universe. You know the old geocentric view of the Earth at the center and the hollow spheres inside each other with the heavenly bodies implanted in them revolving around them. That was Aristotle's view. Copernicus did not invent the heliocentric view, the view that the sun is at the center. That was known in antiquity. But he made it popular uh, that the sun is at the center of the solar system and the Earth revolved around it. This thought led in others, Giordano Bruno as an example, to the view that there was nothing specially privileged about man's solar system, that there was an endless number of such systems, and that the universe was an infinite collection of bodies, that space was infinite and the Earth, in effect, counted for very little in the cosmic scheme of things. Now, the significance of this was that man no longer had a metaphysically privileged place in the universe. The Earth was no longer the center of the universe. The protective crystalline spheres were shattered and an open, endless physical universe awaited discovery. Now there are commentators who say this had the effect of man's unimportance. Not true. Man had discovered it. It was a triumph of the human intellect. But what it did have an effect on this heliocentric view was religion, the Bible story of creation. The view that this earth was a stage setting for the enactment of God's drama and that God spent his time watching the proceedings. This view never recovered from the Copernican revolution. If it's an endless universe with endless worlds, God people began to think this simply hasn't got the time to sit around watching some species on a remote planet lost in infinite space. Now, the Copernican revolution in that sense was an astronomical knife in the back to religion. The only other comparable one was Darwin in the 19th century. Now, I hasten to add, you cannot refute religion on scientific grounds. Religion is a philosophic issue, and Copernicus does not refute the existence of God. It's the way was open immediately for religious people to incorporate Copernicus and say, God is infinite, so he can watch Adam and Eve on infinite number of planets. And therefore, uh, the fact that Earth is just one tiny speck in the universe doesn't mean he isn't interested. All that uh, Copernicus really affected was the literal fundamentalists 
who interpreted the scriptures literally, and that, of course, is inessential to uh, philosophy. But it did have a serious setting back effect of religion for the reasons I mentioned. Now, I might mention Tycho Brahe, B-R-A-H-E, 1546-1601, who made a host of observations and measurements of an astronomical nature. William Gilbert, 1544-1603, who inaugurated the scientific study of magnetism. And now let's take a look at uh, Johann Kepler, 1571-1630, K-E-P-L-E-R. Kepler discovered the laws of planetary motion building on Tycho Brahe's data. He discovered that the planets move around the sun in ellipses, which was an enormous shock because the Greeks had always said the circle is the perfect figure. And when they found that the planets don't go in circles, they go in ellipses, everybody was staggered. And that was an enormous impetus to observation and a scientific study of the world because the idea was think what you can learn by actually studying the facts. <laughs> Moreover, Copernicus discovered that the speed with which the planets move can be calculated mathematically according to certain simple laws that govern all the planets. Wherever he learned, he saw mathematical relationships of the most surprising kind mathematical relationships. For instance, the planets were known to speed up and slow down in their courses around the sun. And the question was how to find any regularity in their changes of velocity. Now, if the medieval world had known about it, they would have looked for an answer on this order. Well, when it's hot, they go faster. When it's cold, they go slower. When it's dark, they go faster. When it's light, they go slower. When it's etc if they had tried at all to explain it and not just say God willed it. Copernic, uh, Kepler rather, found a mathematical law dealing with numbers and geometrical figures. He found that if you draw a line from the focus of the ellipse, the point, you know, where the sun is, to the orbit of the planet, and another line to another point on the orbit, you'll have a triangle. And do the same with another two points, you get another triangle. And he found that if the two triangles are equal in area, then the times required for the planet to go from the first point to the second are the same. In other words, equal areas are swept out in equal times. Now this was absolutely unsuspected. Imagine the planets function according to geometrical figures. Their speed is a function of the area that they sweep out. Or again, he discovered Every planet takes a certain amount of time to, to circle the sun. Call it t in appropriate units. And it has an average distance from the sun. Call it d. Well, for each planet, you'll get two different numbers. Now, he worked it out, and he found out that it invariably is the case that t squared equals d cubed. If you multiply the time by itself and the distance by itself by itself, you get the, the uh, equality. Now. You must not underestimate or overestimate, you, I mean underestimate, the utter shock of this discovery that simple numerical geometrical relationships govern the laws of nature. This was absolutely unexpected, and yet it took place. And you'll see what happens to it in a moment. 
And in that sense, Kepler is enormously important to the development of science and philosophy because of discovering the first crucial mathematical laws. Now let's look at Francis Bacon. 1561 to 1626, the one who did not write Shakespeare's works. <laughs> he is uh, not so much a scientist as a philosopher of science. He's one of the first spokesmen for the new science. And as such, he's not an originator, but a very eloquent formulator of many of the ideas that were uh, germinating in the scientific world. Here are some of his key ideas. One famous line of his, knowledge is power. Now, this is an attitude that he did not originate, but the attitude that it expresses is a new phenomenon in the Western world. It is in contrast to the medieval world and in contrast to the ancient world, even Aristotle. Remember, even Aristotle had held that scientific knowledge is an end in itself. You contemplate simply for the satisfaction of your curiosity. Bacon expresses the attitude of the Renaissance. Knowledge is not an end in itself, it is power. If you have enough knowledge of the laws of nature, you can remake the world to serve human purposes. Nature is not something to be gazed at passively, but something to be used and exploited to satisfy human goals. Man becomes an active creature rather than simply a passive, tranquil observer. Now this is an indispensable contribution of the Renaissance to human thought. Without it, of course, the Industrial Revolution would have been impossible. By itself, it's not enough. You also needed political freedom for the Industrial Revolution. But this attitude that knowledge is power is a mark of the modern mind, not of the ancient or medieval. And of course, as a consequence, Bacon held, and so did the people of this period, that if we study nature, we can make limitless progress. There's endless new vistas to discover and new things to invent and new improvements to make in human life. Now again, this contrasts radically, not only with the medieval, but with the Greek view. Both Plato and Aristotle had the idea, being at the very beginning of knowledge, that everything essentially was known. That perfection, so far as man could achieve it, was reached, and that there was no more progress, simply a static remaining at the level already attained. The idea of permanent progress in uh, human development is a Renaissance contribution. And now another crucial idea of Bacon's. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. If you want to achieve your goals and get what you want from nature, you must understand its laws and obey them. There's no use praying or trying to get around nature. If you want to produce a certain effect, you have to know the cause. If you want to remove a certain effect, you have to know what cause to eliminate. A very, very pregnant, crucial aphorism. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. One of the best aphorisms in the entire history of thought. We must, therefore, says Bacon, have the right methodology. We must have the right means of acquiring knowledge. We must know how to learn. Now, this is again a typically modern attitude. 
ancient and medieval philosophy, although they have a great deal to say on epistemology, are dominantly centered on metaphysics as the crucial branch of philosophy. Modern philosophy centers on epistemology as the dominant branch of philosophy. All modern philosophers, with a few exceptions, are highly conscious of the theory of knowledge. They're highly conscious that before you go into what is the universe like, you have to first validate your method of knowing it. And therefore, progressively, epistemology comes to dominate the scene. Uh, to the point, of course, of insanity in the form it takes in 20th century movements where metaphysics is thrown out altogether and philosophy is exclusively epistemology. But this emphasis on epistemology goes all the way back to the Renaissance. Now again, I stress the Greeks, of course, were interested in epistemology, but they were not centered on epistemology the way everybody was from the time of the Renaissance, or most people. Now, as to Bacon's epistemology, he says we have to break clean from all the errors of the past. And he could quote the Bible here, except as ye become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we have to become like little children epistemologic. Almost everything he says that we believe is wrong. We are right and left seduced by prejudices, superstitions, faulty methods of thinking, which plunge us into fallacies of all kinds. And he proceeded to define four categories of errors that we have to get rid of, which he called the four idols. Now, this is presented in any elementary text on the history of philosophy, so I'll zip through it in a minute. There's the idols of the tribe. Those are the ones, the fallacies, which he believed are inherent in human nature as such. That is, they derive from you belonging to the tribe of mankind. For instance, the tendency to treat abstractions as things, to talk about, to give modern examples in all these cases, not necessarily Bacon's, to talk about the state or society or Washington as though it was an entity. Or the tendency to reject evidence that doesn't conform to your particular pet viewpoint and to look only for supporting evidence, and thus to engage in hasty generalizations. Or Bacon himself lists as one fallacy, one idol of the tribe, the deceptiveness of the senses, the tendency of human beings to rely on the senses, which he believes deceive us via illusions. Of course, he believes that if we correct them by instruments and experiments, they're okay. But you see, this is already a crack in the door at the outset. Here's the philosopher of science, ambivalent about the validity of the senses. Then there are the idols of the cave. Those are the fallacies deriving from the peculiar mental or physical constitution of each individual. Uh, each person uh, lives in a cave of his own, you see, with his own personal distortions over and above the ones that come from being a member of the human race. For instance, the tendency to interpret everything from the viewpoint of your own particular specialty. So a uh, physicist, for instance, will characteristically say there is no such thing as mind. All that exists is the laws of mechanics. A mathematician will say ethics isn't a science because you can't quantify it, etc. Or the tendency of some people to be conservative in a very broad sense here. Everything new is no good. As opposed to other people to be, quote, progressive. Everything old is no good. That would be an idol of the cave. Then there's the idols of the marketplace. 
Those are the idle, the fallacies that derive from the association of men with one another. And that means primarily from language, which is the medium of association. So that, for instance, because words exist, says Bacon, we think that things corresponding to those words must exist. People talk about fate, destiny, chance, fortune. And because they use those words, they think there are such things. That's an idol of the marketplace. And of course, there are ambiguous and vague words which get people into trouble. I don't need to give you an example. And finally, there are the idols of the theater. And these are the false ideas that have resulted from unsound systems of philosophy which have been widely accepted. He calls them idols of the theater because he regards previous philosophies as, quote, stage plays representing worlds of their author's creation, unquote. In other words, he's being sarcastic about all previous philosophy. And here he launches an all-out attack against previous philosophy, theology, intellectual tradition of all kinds. He is particularly virulent in his attack on Aristotle. In part, it is the very package deal that we already observed. Aristotle is the scholastic, you see, allegedly. In part, Bacon is opposed to the syllogism. It doesn't give you new knowledge. All it does is apply what we already know. All men are mortal, therefore Socrates is. Now, I've uh, covered that in a question period, so I won't present it further here. We need, says Bacon, a new method of arriving at knowledge, not a worthless method like the syllogism, which does nothing but tell us in our conclusion what we already knew in the premise anyway. Aristotle's logic came, had come to be called the organon, which means the instrument. Well, Bacon wrote one called the novum organum, the new instrument. And the new method that we have to use, he says, is not syllogism, but induction. We have to observe and generalize to arrive at laws. This is the way to acquire knowledge, not deduction or syllogism. Now, I interject here. Aristotle, of course, recognized induction way before Bacon. He was the one who defined it for the first time. Moreover, Bacon uses a syllogism to refute the syllogism. His argument is, everything that doesn't teach you something new in his sense is worthless. The syllogism doesn't teach you something new and therefore it's worthless. That's a syllogism. Does he learn something new from it or not? He's using the syllogism to attack it, as all the opponents of the syllogism do. What I will say, however, is that Bacon made great improvements in the method and type of induction that had been used prior to his time. Again, I don't believe that he originated this, but he is the formidable spokesman for a new theory of induction. In a word, what came to be called experimental induction. Now, the Greek method was called induction by simple enumeration. And that means induction simply by enumerating examples. You see, this man die, this man die, this man die, this man die, and after a while you generalize and say all men are mortal, and so on. Now, this was really simple enumeration. It was really the only method of induction known to Aristotle and the ancient world. And it has great problems. You might strike coincidences. This Chinese man is a laundryman, and this one is, and this one is, therefore all Chinamen are laundrymen, you see. And there may be exceptions to your general rule, qualifying conditions that make it less than universal. This crow is black, and this one is, and this one is, but there may be an albino crow. And above all, simple enumeration leaves man passive. 
He simply has to sit around and wait for the instances to trot before his eyes. Now, the modern method of induction, of which Bacon is one of the early formulators, is not by simple enumeration, but by experimentation. Suppose you want to establish the value of a certain drug. Now, if you go simply by enumeration, you never can get very far because there's too many factors operating and you don't know what is really responsible. Suppose you observe a thousand people take the drug and they get better. Now, was that due to the drug? Or is they have some dietary factor in common? Or is it they belong to a certain race? Or was it a normal process where the disease would heal itself no matter what? Or what? But the modern method is control of variables. Divide the, your subjects up into two groups. Match them factor for factor. Everything that might conceivably be relevant to the effect you're investigating. And then give the drug to one group and not to the others. Presumably you do it with rats and not with people in this case. And then perhaps on the basis of maybe just 25 or 50 exa examples, if you've chosen your subjects appropriately, you can establish a causal connection and generalize a universal principle with a degree of certainty that you cannot approach if you simply follow 10,000 crows around and observe, yes, this is black and this is black and this is black, but what about the next one? The method of controlled experiments, of subjecting all relevant factors to, to human control, and then systematically altering the one factor you're interested in to see what effects that will have, that was the method of experimentation. And it really is indispensable to any sound inductive method. It's not the whole story, but it's an important ingredient. And Bacon was one of the first formulators of this method. And you see again the emphasis on human activity. Just as knowledge is power, and therefore the goal of science is to go out and act and do something, so in method, man should go out and do something with the factors. Control them, alter them, experiment. Not simply wait passively for the instances to confront him. So again, that common denominator, the man as an active being in goal and in method is a renaissance contribution. Now notice that Bacon is still an empiricist. All knowledge rests on sensory observation and induction therefrom. There are no innate ideas. He agrees with Aristotle. The world is lawful. Reason can know the world. The world is worth knowing. All that is Aristotle. In that sense, Bacon is fundamentally Aristotelian. But his antagonism to deduction and his ambivalence on the senses is already a crack in the wall. Now let's look at Galileo. We're already now approaching into the 17th century, 1564 to 1642. Now in a way, Galileo was the real founder of modern science. And of course, Isaac Newton was born the year that Galileo died, and between them, modern science reached its maturity. Galileo discovered certain basic laws of motion governing all material bodies in the universe. One of them, of course, was the law of falling bodies. That all bodies, no matter of what size or weight, fall with the same acceleration. Whether you drop a feather or a rock, they fall with the same acceleration, in a vacuum, of course. And this is mathematically measurable. It's 32 feet per second per second. 
And of course, he discovered much more than this, but that's simply a sample. Now, what became clear to Galileo before it became fully clear to anybody else was the crucial value of mathematics to science. That, of course, was in part prepared for by Kepler and others, but Galileo is the one who really gets the credit for it. He, more than anyone else, is the one who grasped that physics requires mathematics if it is to develop. Prior to this time, physics and mathematics were regarded essentially as two separate subjects. Approximately the way today you regard aesthetics and chemistry. You take one from one professor and one from another on different days and they have your most tenuous, if any, connection. But an aesthetic chemistry or a chemical aesthetics you simply wouldn't get. Well, that was the attitude of mathematics in relation to physics until Galileo. Galileo was the man who created the concept of mathematical physics. And in that sense, is the father of modern science. What was the value of mathematics? Well, they observed that mathematics gave you an exactness that you couldn't get otherwise. If you simply say something is long or hot or fast, you can't do very much with that knowledge. But if you say it's 10.2 feet or 93.7 degrees or it's moving at a rate of 32 feet per second, if you translate a quality into a quantity, you have a precision in your knowledge of nature that is otherwise unattainable. And as a result, you can discover relationships in reality that you could never hope to discover on a qualitative basis. You could see things getting faster, but only if you exactly measure could you discover that acceleration under gravity is uniform. You can discover a law unexpected on the basis of observation, a precise mathematical law. And it turned out that these laws existed and were being discovered by scientists in all sorts of areas. As some of them put it, it and they all believed in God, of course, it's as if God were a mathematician and he had built the universe on mathematical lines. And of course, because precise laws had been discovered, combinations of them suggested still wider laws which would explain the earlier ones. And on the basis of a handful of mathematically formulated laws, Newton explained almost all phenomena in physics and astronomy then known. The discoveries of Kepler, Galileo, uh, etc. It appeared to them that if you tried to unravel the universe strictly in qualitative terms, you were limited to a few vague generalizations, like Aristotle with his earth, air, water, and fire. But if you approached it quantitatively, the whole universe opened up to human understanding. And as a result of this pre uh, precision, exact predictions could be made, and therefore, knowledge became power, control, over the world could be exerted in a way that would be unapproachable without mathematics. So that on the basis of Newton's discoveries, for instance, you could predict to the last fraction of a second when the apple would fall, how fast, where it would be each second, when the tides would rise and fall, how high, how fast, how the planets revolved, the path of the comets, the behavior of gases, everything then known. Galileo and some established that the true task of physics is to discover the mathematical relationships governing bodies in motion. 
And this was as fruitful an approach as could be dreamed of. Now here we have to give credit to Pythagoras. You remember him with his mystical world of numbers. Well, many of these scientists were Pythagoreans. And they looked for mathematical law even in the face of the belief that of everybody else that it's hopeless and you'll never find it. They looked on the grounds that Pythagoras had said all things are numbers and if we look long enough we'll simply have to find the numbers. Now for instance Kepler was a Pythagorean. A really weird Pythagorean. Remember the Pythagoreans in the ancient world had believed that music was mathematical and since everything was mathematical they believed that the heavenly bodies gave out music. The music of the spheres. They associated music and the heavens because both were mathematical. Well, Kepler goes so far as to identify the vocal range of each planet. <laughs> Jupiter is a bass, for instance, Mars a tenor, Venus a soprano, Mercury a falsetto, and the Earth sings me, fa, me, for misery, famine, misery. Now you see the fantastic combination of errant mysticism and modern science. It's not a clean break by any means with mysticism. But we must say for the record that Pythagoras, in spite of all of his mysticism, finally bore serious fruit. Well, now let us take a look at the universe established by the scientists, including now Newton, and contrasted with the medieval viewpoint. To begin with, modern science despiritualized nature. Despiritualized nature. Science declared that physical nature was nothing but the movement of small bodies, of atoms, of which one movement is the cause of the other, operating according to simple, inexorable mathematical laws. There was no room left for spiritual powers of any kind, for supernatural powers, for occult powers to operate. And here, of course, they used Occam's razor. Entities are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. I can explain, the scientists said, the whole world strictly on the basis of matter in motion. Therefore, let's wipe out all spiritual entities in physical nature. Away with angels, devils, gods, world souls, essences, the whole works are out. As a result, of course, teleology was rejected. Mechanism was adopted. Teleology, as you know, is the view that everything is purposive. Everything aims or strives for some goal. And it does imply the idea of some kind of consciousness controlling things, even though many of its advocates have denied that. But in actual fact, as I mentioned in an earlier lecture, you cannot talk about striving for the future unless you have the faculty of awareness of the future. And in that sense, teleology does imply consciousness. And uh, when they despiritualized the physical world, they abandoned teleology in favor of mechanism. The rallying cry was, there are no final causes in nature, only efficient causes. And again, in contrast to the Greeks and the medievals, they held the view, modern science, that the whole universe is homogeneous. Now, the Greeks and the medievals had tended to exalt the astronomical universe, the heavens, and to say that the part on Earth was of a lesser material, lesser in value, or different in kind. 
Even Aristotle held that view. Modern science said no. The universe is homogeneous throughout. The laws which apply to the heavens and the material which exists in the heavens is the same as the material and the laws on earth, which of course is our modern perspective. Now, you see here, of course, that it is the mechanistic, atomistic materialism of Democritus that won out and became the philosophy of modern science. And these people were all influenced by the ancient atomists. Now, I just point out to you that some of them, particularly in the philosophers, not the scientists, tended to generalize. And they said, why should the animals, why should man, be an exception to the principles that govern the entire physical universe. Man, too, must be simply matter in motion, and that's all. There's no distinction in principle between the animate and the inanimate. Mind can be explained materialistically and mechanistically, simply as a kind of motion of material bodies according to mathematical law. That's the position that we'll see Thomas Hobbes takes next week. If you want to take an overview, therefore, you can say that modern science has four main roots, three of them traceable back to the ancient world. One, its basic philosophy in epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics is Aristotelian. The senses, reason, denial of innate ideas, this world is fully real, intelligible to man, worth studying, the proper processes are induction and deduction, Human life on Earth is a value. All of those premises, which are indispensable to modern science, are Aristotelian. In that sense, modern science is Aristotelian at its philosophic base. But in specific content, the next main contributor was Democritus, because modern science adopted mechanistic materialism for its theory of nature. And this they needed fully to implement Aristotle's metaphysics. Aristotle had implied that the whole world was lawful, but his teleology, remember, had led him to, to the idea of chance and that some things violate law. Mechanistic materialism, as applied now strictly to the physical world, I make no comment about man or living creatures, but as applied strictly to the inanimate world, was needed in order fully to implement the idea that the universe is lawful. And thirdly, Pythagoras, because Pythagoras, combined with Democritus, was the key factor in being able to grasp the laws that mechanistic materialism told us existed, because Pythagoras supplied the idea that the key to law is mathematics. The fourth root is the distinctive Renaissance contribution that I've stressed. Man as an active being that supplied both the inductive methodology of experimentation and the goal, knowledge is power. Uh, so you can say that, to summarize it, on an Aristotelian base, the idea of combining Democritus and Pythagoras on the premise that man must act, that combination gave rise to modern science. Now, I have referred to the good and the bad in modern science. I've given you some warning signs of the bad in Bacon. By the way, Galileo did not share Bacon's contempt for deduction. But I now want to look at one crucial premise of Galileo which was instrumental in undercutting modern science, 
and affecting the subsequent transition back to Platonism, skepticism, and ultimately Kant. Galileo declares that a crucial distinction can be made between two kinds of sensory qualities. On the one hand, colors, tastes, smells, sounds, hot and cold, textures, etc. On the other, size, shape, number, motion, rest. Now, who does this remind you of? Democritus? Democritus is a distinction between the qualities the atoms have in themselves and the subjective qualities they simply appear to have because of their effects on us. Galileo took this distinction over from Democritus and embedded it into the heart of modern science so that it became scientific orthodoxy thereafter. And therefore, this distinction was accepted by Descartes, it was accepted by Hobbes, it was accepted by Spinoza, it was accepted by Locke, it was Locke who gave it its modern name, the so-called primary qualities versus the secondary qualities. The primary being the uh, shape, size, uh, number, motion or rest, the secondary being all the rest. What is the difference between them? Well, they said, the primary are mathematically measurable. They are quantifiable. You can give us a precise mathematical description of the shape of something, or the size, or its rate of motion. But can you tell us how beige something is, or how cherry it tastes, or how rosy it smells, etc.? Well, they said no. Now, if reality is, as Pythagoras said, the place that is par excellence mathematicizable, then the qualities that can't be quantified are not real. That was one argument. And then, of course, they argued. The so-called secondary qualities vary from person to person, from perceiver to perceiver. The colorblind man sees gray and the normal man sees red. The man with the cold in his nose tastes cherry pie as bitter versus the man without a cold, etc. On the other hand, the primary qualities remain the same for everybody. You can measure them. And therefore, if it's six inches, it's six inches. Whether you've got a cold in your nose or a color blind or are standing on your head. And therefore, they argued on that ground also, it looks like the secondary qualities are perceiver dependent, dependent on the perceiver and simply subjective, whereas the primary qualities are not. And then again, thirdly, they argued, it's quite easy to conceive of matter without these secondary qualities. Think of air, for instance. It doesn't bother you at all that it has no color, it has no sound. In most cases, it has no detectable temperature. In fact, for a long time, men didn't even know it existed. On the other hand, if you try to take away one of your primary qualities, the whole thing obliterates in your mind and there's nothing left. Try and imagine a piece of matter of any kind that has no size at all, no shape, no number, is neither moving nor at rest, and of course it obliterates. And so they said this is further confirmation of the fact that the primary qualities are intrinsic in reality. The secondary qualities are just our subjective human way of perceiving what's out there in uh, reality.
colors, sounds, tastes, smells, textures, warmth, cold, all of these, they said, do not exist in reality. They are merely subjective effects in us of what is really out there. And a common example uh, later given was, it's like the tickle of a feather. When you tickle somebody with a feather, where is the tickle? Is the tickle out there in the feather, or is the tickle just the effect on you? Well, obviously the tickle is just the effect on you. If there was no you, there'd be no tickle. Well, they said exactly that holds true for all of the secondary qualities. And for the same reasons. How do you know the tickle isn't there? Well, it's not mathematically measurable. I'm presenting their view. It varies from person to person. Some people giggle and others don't. And you could easily imagine matter which is not ticklish. But uh, uh, you can't do that with the primary qualities. Consequently, concluded Galileo and his followers, the senses are deceptive. The world is not what it looks like at all. The world of science is a strange, remote world of mute, colorless, textureless, odorless particles having only size, shape, and motion. All the rest is a subjective illusion. Now, as I say, just about everybody picked this up. It is a dichotomy which has had catastrophic effects. It's Democritus's view, of course. And it leads to people like Bertrand Russell saying there are two tables in this room. The table of common sense, which is green and solid and peaceful and so on. And the table of science, which is a berserk mass of charges whirling back and forth and shooting off cosmic rays and so on. And Bertrand Russell spent a good part of his life trying to get the two tables back together into one table and finally confessed that it couldn't be done, at least in certain moods he thought it couldn't be done. <laughs> now this is a vital issue, uh, and you will soon see the catastrophes that derive from this primary-secondary quality distinction, and that I have already promised you in spades for Lecture 12, the objectivist view. Now in the brief remaining time, let us go back for a while in time and see what is happening in the value realms of philosophy, in ethics and politics. Now, I said that there were the Platonists and the scientists. What effect did the uh, new science have on value theory? Let's look at the new science first, and then we'll see what the Platonists were up to in value theory. Well, let's take as our example of an early political theorist claiming to speak as a scientist, Machiavelli. 1469 to 1527. Now, he was one of the earliest to develop what is called the modern scientific attitude to values. And that came about as follows. Science consists of observing the facts and then explaining them. In science, you don't say what you would like the facts to be. You simply record the way they are. The purpose of science is description, not prescription. Well, how do you apply that to ethics and politics? Well, said the so-called moralists of science, we are not going to tell men what they ought to do. 
Ethics consists of simply describing what people actually do do. Good means what men want, not what they ought to want. Just as gravity is how bodies act, not how they ought to act. This came to be known as the naturalistic or realistic view of ethics, as opposed, you see, to the idealistic view that ethics has something to do with values. Their argument again was, any science has to be, including ethics, has to be concerned with facts, not with values. Values do not come under the domain of facts. There are no values out there in the world intrinsically, as an intrinsic inherent feature of things. Nothing is good in itself, they argued. It is good only to someone, which means it is good only if somebody arbitrarily decides it's good, which means it is good only subjectively and therefore outside the bounds of science. Now here you see the dichotomy. Values are either out there in the world as independent entities, that is to say they're intrinsic, or they are simply arbitrary human constructs, that is to say they are subjective. The, those influenced by science on this question decided to take the view that values are subjective and that their sole function is to describe the values people actually hold without comment. Those influenced by Plato took the view, of course, that values are intrinsic. They're part of the furniture of the universe. So you reduce back to Plato versus the sophists. Intrinsic mystical values versus subjective uh, uh, values. And modern science firmly aligned itself with the subjective viewpoint. And you, today it's a bromide. Science has nothing to say about values. Science gives us means, it doesn't give us ends, etc. Now the idea of a third possibility, that values are objective, neither intrinsic in reality, nor subjective arbitrary constructions of human beings, was never dreamed of at all prior to objectivism. I cannot elaborate that in this course. But if you read Ayn Rand's essay, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, the title essay on what is capitalism, the first essay, uh, will elaborate the objectivist view on this question. In any event, Machiavelli, I think I gave you his dates 1469 to 1527, combined this so-called realist approach with a strong dose of secularized original sin. Men in his viewpoint are essentially stupid, irrational creatures incapable of self-government or rational control of themselves. They are moved by passion, not reason. Therefore, the only feasible government is a strong monarchy. Same type of argument that Plato gave, that Augustine gave, and that Hobbes is going to give next week. <coughs> if we don't have a powerful government, we'll have universal slaughter, says Machiavelli. Now, the king will probably turn out to be a tyrant, since he also is a man, but what can you do when you deal with people? Now, you say, well, why don't you tell people how they ought to behave? Why don't you set standards of good and evil to which the ruler should adhere? And Machiavelli would answer, now, look, I don't set standards, I'm a scientist. Whatever men aim at is the good, by definition. And whatever acts produce this end is virtue by definition. If men want power, 
then the acts which produce power are virtue. And they do want power. Everybody wants power. That's the way people are. There's no ought about it. Politics is therefore the art of developing those qualities which will enable you to achieve power. And the ones that'll do it best, says Machiavelli, are force and fraud. Therefore, if you employ them ruthlessly enough and cunningly enough, you will achieve your ends. And in his manual, The Prince, he gives many tips as to how to do it. This is the so-called realistic, but actually, as you see, completely subjectivist approach. What was the alternative that was offered? You see, just to summarize this point, once they abandoned teleology, the idea that reality sets certain purposes to man, they could think of no objective way to prescribe a code of values. And so they drew the conclusion, you simply take men as they factually come, observe their desires without comment, and simply describe for them the best way of achieving their ends, whatever those ends happen to be. Now, as against this trend, the other trend of the Renaissance was the Platonists, who believed that values are intrinsic, that there's a form of the good or some equivalent out there in reality, and all you have to do is commune with it and you'll know what's really good. They preach ideals based on intrinsic goodness. And in a funny a uh, little coincidence, every single one of them preaches that the ideal is a socialist or communist state uh, politically. And here the arch example is Thomas More, 1480 to 1535, author of Utopia, one of the fathers of socialism in which he advocates a complete communist state. Uh, if you're interested, ask in the question period, I brought a book which describes some of the features of Utopia, but I won't take the time to read it now. You see, however, the alternative you're offered. Notice that both sides recommend force. Moore says, we must have rule by the learned because most men can't grasp the intrinsic good by themselves. Therefore, they have to be compelled. That's pure Platonism, you see, the philosopher king, in effect. Machiavelli says there is no intrinsic good Therefore, he concludes, there's no rational way of dealing with men. Therefore, we must use force. So we're back again to Plato versus the sophists. You see the crucial need for an objective code of morality, which will be neither intrinsic nor subjective. And that was, of course, one of the major ethical contributions of objectivism. As it came to be put during this period, the crucial need is to find a place for value in a world of fact. How to find room for objective values in a world of fact. And the consensus of philosophy progressively was it cannot be done. Either you have a mystic experience or a religious ethics or you become a Machiavellian skeptic. Well, you see now the problems beginning to emerge as we reach the end of the 16th century. In metaphysics, God is not yet dead and the religionists have yet to make their final attempts to save him, to reconcile God and science. While the materialists are busy denying mind and purpose and saying man is simply a complicated machine. In epistemology, you see the attack on the senses, on deduction, that bodes very badly for the future. And in ethics, we are back to Plato versus the sophists. So far, however, these are all simply tendencies suggestions. They're not yet full systems. 
The future course of modern philosophy awaits the 17th century, when two philosophers laid down the first full modern systems of philosophy and became between them the founders of modern philosophy. One of them was the materialist Thomas Hobbes, and the other tried with all his might to reconcile science and Catholicism. And he became the real father of modern philosophy, René Descartes. Those two, Hobbes and Descartes, are the subject of next week's lecture. Until then, let's draw a line here. Thank you. Now, um, I have uh, a number of written questions, uh, so I'll try to take a couple of them first. I had the one, I lost it somewhere, but it was asked several times, on Aquinas' angels. So I'll say simply two things about Aquinas' angels. Of course, he believed in angels. Uh, uh, everybody believed in angels at that time. Uh, so it wasn't even debatable. And he had them all arranged hierarchically, and if I remember, there was nine orders of them, ranging from the lowest to the highest, and they had all sorts of different powers. And he pursued angelology systematically. He knew more about angels than any of us in this room know about living creatures. Uh, now, he had many problems with the angels. Here's one. The angels are purely spiritual beings. They have no bodies, no matter. But matter is the principle of individuation on Aristotle's and Aquinas' philosophy. So the question is, what makes any particular angel this angel rather than any other since he lacks matter? It lacks matter. You get the problem? How do you distinguish one angel from another if an angel is pure form? Now, Aquinas' answer was, no two angels have the same form. Now, think about that. It means that each actually belongs to a different species and is the only representative of its species that is possible. Now, of course, that reads a big question. Why call them all angels then? Do they have anything in common? If not, you shouldn't call them all angels. If yes, there has to be something that individuates and distinguishes one from the other. Well, he had a terrible difficulty uh, with angels in this respect. And there again is the problem of trying to reconcile Aristotle with Christianity. The more interesting thing about angels, though, is the way they acquire knowledge. And this is very instructive. I was first taught this by Ms. Rand as an epistemological lesson. She knows a great deal about Aquinas' angels, and she uses that expression all the time as a very helpful way of capturing something. The angels, not having physical senses, do not arrive at concepts by abstraction. They contact the forms in God's mind directly. Therefore, they grasp the abstraction in one act of contemplating the form and, says Aquinas, in the act of grasping the abstraction, they thereby know every particular instance that will ever come under it. Now, the importance of this is, not that there are, is such a species, obviously, but it's very helpful to keep in mind because that is precisely what human beings are not. 
the essence of human epistemology is to grasp abstractions by a process of seeing a number of instances and abstracting. But the fact that you grasp the abstraction, even though you grasp it fully clearly, does not mean that you are automatically conversant with every instance that will ever come under it. You have to make a separate act of thought to say, now I know this abstraction and here is a new fact, therefore I put the two together and I come to this particular conclusion. And there's a great many cases of people who hear an abstraction, understand it, and then fail to apply it to some case and reproach themselves when they hear the answer on the grounds of, oh, I should have known that. Now all that kind of guilt, assuming you've been not just stagnating intellectually, but you're doing your best, comes from the implicit assumption that you should operate like Aquinas' angel. And that if you know, for instance, that mind and body are integrated, you should know every blessed subdivision and sub-instance of that theory in relation to practice and idealism in relation to practicality and uh, all the rest of it. And if you miss one, that goes to show that you're no good. That's a real source of guilt that should be abandoned. And the best way to abandon it is to follow Ms. Rand here and say to yourself, I'm not Aquinas' angel. I have to, as a human being, grasp particulars by applying my abstraction, by a new act of thought in each particular case. And the things I grasp, fine, and the things I don't, as long as I'm open and working, is not uh, held against me. I found that enormously helpful when Ms. Rand first taught me that. And to this day, everybody that I know uses the expression, you're not Aquinas' angel. I'll take one from the floor now. Yes. This is a hypothetical question based upon an assumption of an existence at a particular time. And this is the question. Will Socrates, during the dialogue, have permitted Plato to use a technical I don't think you mean that question seriously, so let us go on. Um, do I have another question from the floor? Yes. Well, uh, why did the forces of reason and science not wipe out Christianity entirely? They did. But it takes time. You cannot, have, you cannot have a thousand years in which something is regarded as a self-evident axiom and everything is integrated around it, every human circuit and concern and premise, and expect that because you're challenged the base, the rest is all simply going to obliterate. This is where the fact that human beings are not Aquinas as angels comes into the picture. They have to grasp in each new concrete, oh yes, that's Christianity and I've rejected that. And oh yes, this is and I've rejected that. And that It doesn't take as long to undo as it did to build, but it's very similar to the process by which you recover from a neurosis. If it takes you 20 years to build up a good-sized neurosis, it might take you now, Dr. Blumenthal won't allow me to give it time, but it would take you, let us say, several years to overcome it. Not as long as to build it up, but on the other hand, uh, you may hear the most brilliant lecture and be intellectually convinced of what's wrong with your neurosis, but you have to uproot it 
one application at a time until you begin to automatize the new viewpoint. Now mankind as a whole functions the same way. Now it's very rapid. Five centuries only, essentially, since the Renaissance. And already the latest wing in Christianity is proclaiming atheism. You know, God is dead as a new school of Protestant theology. Now religion is gone now. There's a lot of other bad things and there's a lot of bad legacies of religion, but religion is not only not a dominant force, it is not even a non-dominant force today. In the West, for practical purposes, atheism rules. Uh, it's not even controversial anymore. You have, to, you have to go out of your way in the Bible Belt to find somebody who will even argue for it. Uh, and in that sense, Christianity has gone. I mean, the buildings are still around, but, you know, that's about it. You can't have an ahistorical view, you know, as though all of mankind sits down, reads Aquinas, and says, okay, let's start over. It just doesn't work that way. Please describe utopia. All right. I won't, but I will let of all people Bertrand Russell, who has a good description of it, uh, briefly. And I was going to read you this in the lecture, and I ran out of time. I'll just give you a few excerpts. This will surely be enough to give you the clue to utopia. Quote, this is Bertrand Russell's description of it, but on this point, he actually is accurate. <laughs> Quote, there are in utopia 40, 54 towns, all on the same plan, except that one is the capital. All the streets are 20 feet broad, and all the private houses are exactly alike, with one door onto the street and one onto the garden. There are no locks on the doors, and everyone may enter any house. The roofs are flat. This is Bertrand Russell style. You know, he <laughs> throws them all in. Every tenth year, people change houses, apparently to prevent any feeling of ownership. All are dressed alike, except that there is a difference between the dress of men and women and of married and unmarried. The fashions never change, and no difference is made between summer and winter clothing. Everybody, men and women alike, work six hours a day, three before dinner and three after. All go to bed at eight and sleep eight hours. In the early morning there are lectures to which multitudes go, although they are not compulsory. After supper, an hour is devoted to play. Six hours work is enough because there are no idlers and there is no useless work. Some men are elected to become men of learning and are exempted from other work while they are found satisfactory. All who are concerned with government are chosen from the learned. See, that's pure Platonism. Family life is patriarchal. Married sons live in their father's house and are governed by him unless he is in his dotage. If any family grows too large, the surplus children are moved into another family. If a town, you see the complete collectivism. If a town grows too large, some of the inhabitants are moved into another town. If all the towns are too large, a new town is built on wasteland. Eating at home is permitted, but most people eat in common halls. Cooking is done by women and the waiting by the older children. Men sit at one bench, women at another. Nursing mothers with children under five are in a separate parlor. You see the mentality that's got it all planned out down to the last semi-comma of how the rest of mankind will live its life forever. All women nurse their own children. Children over five, if too young to be waiters, stand by in marvelous silence while their elders eat. <laughs> They have no separate dinner, but must be content with such scraps as are given them from the table. As for marriage, both men and women are sharply punished, if not virgin, when they marry. 
and the householder of any house in which misconduct has occurred is liable to incur infamy for carelessness. Before marriage, bride and groom see each other naked. No one would buy a horse without first taking off the saddle and bridle. <laughs> and similar and similar consideration should apply in marriage. There is divorce for adultery or intolerable waywardness of either party, but the guilty party cannot remarry. People have no money and they teach contempt for gold by using it for chamber pots and the chains of slaves. Pearls and diamonds are used as ornaments for infants, but never for adults. One man in the book preaches Christianity to the utopians, and many were converted when they learned that Christ was opposed to private property. The importance of communism is constantly stressed. Almost at the end, we are told that in all other nations, and here's a quote from Moore, I can perceive nothing but a certain conspiracy of rich men procuring their own commodities under the name and title of the commonwealth. Unquote. That sounds like McGovern, but it's Moore. <laughs> It goes on like that. You get the idea. It's a full-fledged platonic little uh, dictatorship. Bertrand Russell's comment on this, by the way, is that it is, quote, astonishingly liberal. <laughs> but he doesn't like it because, quote, it must be admitted, however, that life in Moore's utopia would be intolerably dull. Diversity is essential to happiness, and in utopia there is hardly any. This is a defect of all planned social systems, actual as well as imaginary, unquote. That is the totality of his comment. Then he goes on to the uh, next chapter. It's not enough diversity for him. The fact that it's a complete dictatorship and would stifle any and all human creativity he doesn't consider worth mentioning. But uh, obviously, why not? Uh, let me see what I have piling up here. For developing the philosophy of objectivism, is there a beginning, a genesis? Is there a word, phrase, sentence, or single idea that is a logical place to start? If so, what? Yes, there is. There is two words that are one word that is the logical place to start, and that is existence. Or if you want it in the form of a sentence, existence exists. What is, is. That is the primary of objectivism, from which we then go on to develop the existence of consciousness, the faculty for being aware of existence, and the basic law of existence. It is what it is, the law of identity. And then from there, develop the system. But the foundation is existence. That, however, uh, I, the wind is blowing these questions. Uh, that, however, I cannot go into further here. Uh, I thought that there was no proof that Jesus actually existed. Is there such proof? If so, what is it? And could you tell us your source for his dates? Well, you see, it's a special academic game that people play. Was there really such and such a person? Now they do that with Socrates. And you periodically, someone will come out with the article that there was no such person as Socrates. Xenophon and Plato made him up. Or there was no such person as Jesus, etc. Now I regard these as simply absurd because A, we have got the evidence of the scriptures and those are historical documents. No, no, wait. If scripture reports that 
somebody tapped a rock and wine came out, you don't accept it. But if scripture reports there was a man who preached certain ideas, and if you see everybody and his brother jumping to embrace those ideas, and you see a whole religion develop out of them, it's simply ludicrous to say there was no person there. If there wasn't, there was somebody else who did the same thing, so what difference does it make? So what have you accomplished? There was no Jesus, there was somebody named Bill Smith who preached at the time of uh, the first decades that we now call A.D., that you should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and etc. Now what, uh, I mean, this is just senseless. Uh, I certainly believe in Jesus on the same grounds I believe in Socrates, simply historical evidence. Where did I get his dates from the encyclopedia? Would you please briefly review the dichotomy of necessary versus contingent facts and the error therein? Yes, actually I didn't cover it at all, I don't think, because I referred you to my article on the analytic synthetic dichotomy for that, but in a word, the people who believe in necessary versus contingent facts believe there are two kinds of facts. Certain facts simply must be the case by the very nature of reality. For instance, that fire is hot, that water uh, is wet, uh, etc. Other facts, they say, and those facts they call necessary, the first kind. Other facts, they say, happen to be the case, but we could imagine a world where they were not the case. For instance, that when water, that water freezes at, uh, at uh, zero degrees centigrade. Now, couldn't you imagine a world where everything was the same, they say, but water froze at five degrees, assuming you hadn't defined zero as the free freezing point of water. Now, uh, uh, then they proceed to say, for instance, that man has uh, reason is necessary because that's part of the definition. But that man has two eyes, well, you could imagine a man with an eye on the top of his head or coming out the back of his neck or on the tip of his little finger. And therefore, a man could have five eyes, so it's just contingent. Now, that's the nature of the dichotomy. It was subscribed to in various ways by Plato, by Aristotle, and uh, by Aquinas, and as you'll see, by uh, uh, Leibniz and Locke and Hume and has many disastrous consequences culminating in Kant. Now, there are a great many errors in this, but just to take one or two central ones, there can be no such thing as a contingent fact in the sense here used. Every fact is necessary. If you believe in the law of identity, then you believe in the law of causality. I've already discussed that relationship. You believe that everything that happens, happens as an inexorable result of the nature of the entities involved. And that given the entities and the circumstances, if anything else had happened, that would be a contradiction which is prohibited in logic. Therefore, in that sense, metaphysically, everything is necessary. It is dictated by the nature of the entities involved. A contingent fact a fact which metaphysically could have been otherwise would mean an entity that could have acted in defiance of its nature, which would mean a contradiction. Therefore, the whole idea of contingent facts is simply out. Now, 
don't confuse free will with contingency. There is such a thing as volition, but I've already commented in an earlier question period that volition is a subcategory of causality, not a violation of it. What are the roots of this confusion? Well, there are many, but I'll confine myself to one because that's not the central subject here. If I borrow from my formulation in that article, you must make a clear distinction between metaphysics and Walt Disney. The fact that you can imagine something proves only that you have the capacity to fantasize. It has no philosophic significance. Now, the people you see who take this say, if Walt Disney could draw it, it's possible. And therefore, it's just a contingent that man has two eyes because Walt Disney could draw them with five, you see. But even Walt Disney couldn't draw water that wasn't wet or fire that wasn't orange or whichever. And therefore, uh, uh, that puts a limit on reality. Now, what Walt Disney or your imagination can or can't project is of no objective significance whatever. You can imagine what you can imagine only uh, because you're ignorant. I don't mean that insultingly, but I mean this. If you knew the facts involved in man having two eyes, and every biological and neurophysiological antecedent of that fact, and you saw why man had two eyes, and why that was in the nature of him, you could no more imagine man having five eyes than you could imagine the contrary of any fact, the reason for which you see. You can imagine the opposite only insofar as you are ignorant of or evade the knowledge of why things are as they are. No argument based on ignorance proves anything about reality. In reality, everything is necessary, and there is no such thing as a fact which happens to be but doesn't have to be. Now, for details, I refer you to my article on the analytic synthetic where I blast this whole business from beginning to end. Now, uh, do I have anybody who feels they have a good one from the floor? Yes. Let me pick up. Uh, Aristotle's, uh, as far as I can understand, Aristotle's concept of definition, perceptive uh, function of definition, was more than merely to categorize uh, one's vocabulary or one's, even one's uh, uh, ideas, but to facilitate understanding of the nature of one subject matter. This being so, did, did not his uh, principles of definition anticipate uh, Bacon's uh, principles of scientific induction? Did Aristotle's principles of definition anticipate Bacon's principles of scientific induction? I do not see the connection you imply. Certainly, for Aristotle, definitions are not simply linguistic. Uh, you're correct in his saying that for Aristotle, definitions are a mode of objective knowledge of reality, of facts of reality. Classification is an objective fact, not simply a subjective uh, declaration of how you're going to use certain vocabulary. It doesn't follow, though, that because definitions give you, according to knowledge, uh, Aristotle, objective knowledge of reality, they therefore give you the methodology of induction. Now, Aristotle himself has very little to say about the correct methodology of induction in the extant works. All he really tells us is that there's three kinds of induction. The induction by which we arrive at axioms like the laws of logic, which consists of seeing a few instances and then grasping self-evidently the universal truth. But that's applicable only to induction, to, to, to axioms. That's so-called intuitive induction, using intuitive meaning just the capacity to grasp the self-evident. Then there's ordinary induction. When you see three puppy dogs wag their tails, 
and uh, um, they're happy, and you generalize all puppy dogs wag their tails when they're happy. Now that type, Aristotle said, is suspect. All it does, that's simple enumeration, you see. All it does is give you the material for a generalization, but you have to validate it by deductive means. He did not know any methodology by which to validate it inductively, experimentally. And finally, for Aristotle, there is what's called induction by complete enumeration. That is, if in some case you could actually study every particular first under a universal, then of course you could state the generalization with complete confidence. But you wouldn't need a generalization then because you'd already know every particular. And that's all Aristotle recognizes, those three types. And therefore his theory of induction is definitely defective. Now if you want to hypothesize that if you took Aristotle's theory of definition, combined it with a proper theory of universals, reinterpreted it, and then applied it to the question of induction, would you come up with a valid theory of induction? Yes, you would, but Aristotle didn't do that, at least not judging by what, what we have. Let me see if there's one more in the box that's brief that I might give an answer to, and then I'll take the rest home, and if there's any... Um, I don't know how to answer any of these briefly. How is it, well, I'll take this one because that'll clarify something. How is it possible to overemphasize epistemology? Well, it's possible to overemphasize anything. I do not mean, however, that epistemology is not crucial. Objectivism agrees that epistemology is the most crucial subject of philosophy. And that philosophy is essentially epistemology because a, ethics and politics depend absolutely on epistemology, and therefore epistemology is much more fundamental. B, objectivism holds that metaphysics is a very, very delimited subject. A great deal of what traditionally went into metaphysics, objectivism holds as the function of science to discover. And therefore objectivism does not have theories on the nature of the mind-body relationship and uh, 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 the nature of matter, is it atomic, etc., and all those questions that went into metaphysics that really belong in science. Objectivism holds that the essence of metaphysics is the law of identity, and its corollary, the law of causality, and uh, a few of the more obvious implications of that. But uh, the primacy of existence, of course. But beyond the fundamentals, objectivism holds that the essence of philosophy is epistemology. And in that sense, we certainly agree with it. And what did I mean when I say that modern philosophy overemphasizes it? Well, perhaps overemphasizes is a misleading word. Modern philosophy followed this progression. With Kant, it came to the conclusion that metaphysics is impossible. With the uh, logical positivists, in the 20th century, it came to the conclusion that not only metaphysics, but also ethics and politics are impossible, which left that philosophy is only epistemology, which is to say a study of the means of knowledge divorced from any awareness of reality or any practical consequences of it, which of course was impossible and useless, which led therefore to the view of the analysts, the latest wave of modern philosophy in the 20th century, that even epistemology is useless and impossible, and that therefore philosophy, it does not exist as a subject. And that is the current view. 
You cannot have epistemology unless you have a metaphysical foundation for it. And there's no point in having it unless you're going to draw the practical cash value conclusions from it. And consequently, if you make philosophy exclusively epistemology, you end up having no philosophy at all. And that's just what the moderns do. They say there is no such subject as philosophy. There's no distinctively philosophic questions. Philosophers are, in effect, hecklers who walk around listening to the man on the street speak and simply tease out little puzzles for the help. <laughs> now, that is abysmal trivia, garbage and junk, to put it technically. Uh, <laughs> Now, I don't say that, that that's implicit in Bacon or any of the others' uh, emphasis on epistemology. I think the switch to epistemology is very valuable if it doesn't result in a complete obliteration of metaphysics and the other branches of philosophy. Unfortunately, the epistemology that caught on was skepticism, and the result was it swamped everything else. It's the same pattern in which the sophists abandon metaphysics and ethics because of their skeptical epistemology. It's in that sense. So I was wrong or misleading to say you can overemphasize epistemology. What I should have said is a skeptical epistemology is a corruption that will destroy all of philosophy. Okay, we're five minutes over time, so let's stop here. This course continues with Lecture 9.